This is episode 231 of Aloha Mora for October 29, 2017. I'm Katie Carty Hiley. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Beth Warsaw. And we would like to extend a very warm welcome to our guest today, Sherry. Welcome, Sherry. Hi, everybody. I'm so glad to be here. We're so glad to have you. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself, what house you're in, and how you got into Harry Potter and all that jazz? Well, I have kind of a fun how I got into Harry Potter story. Mm-hmm. Um, I read my best friend invited me in 1999 to read a book called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And my first reaction was, what the heck is that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I was 42 at the time, and I read a little bit of kids' books, but mostly things I'd liked as a child. And so I said, well, okay, whatever. But the joke was on me because I was hooked from the very first sentence. That first sentence, it tells you so much about the Dursleys, you know, just in that one sentence. And I fell in love, and I was the one who became the avid fan. I uh, sought out fandom online. A lot of that was quite a bit younger than me. I found Harry Potter for grown-ups and joined that. And participated in a lot of really intense discussions, which I miss greatly. I eventually became one of the list elves. I don't know when you were there, Katie, but I was Blinky Elf. That does sound familiar. I started (laughs) around 2001 or 2002, around in there. Yeah, I was there from about then till, well, I'm still there, but the list is pretty much dead now. Uh, yes, um, sadly. <laughs> I went to the last three book releases, Midnight, and it's really special because growing up as a blind person in the 60s, we didn't get books when everybody else got them. We might mm. wait years or they might not ever come out. So being able to go to a bookstore at midnight and buy a book that everybody around me was buying was the first time I, I cried over that. Um, oh, that is so beautiful. I now have the books in Braille, um, digital audio from audio, Audible, and I have the old cassette and CD versions in a crate out in my garage. Um, That's amazing. My That's house, so cool. I am a proud Griffin Puff. <laughs> nice. Ah, there was quite a bit of uh, heated discussion about that last week. On I the heard last that. I've been kind of equally sorted into both, and loyalty mm. is the most important characteristic to me. Aw, well, we believe you, Sherry. So, it's a thing. <laughs> that's right. And my let's see, my wand is unicorn and hazel, and I forget mm. what that meant. And my Patronus was a dun horse, and I was disappointed because I wanted it to be a dog. Yes, I. Hey, we have that in common. I wanted a dog, and yeah. I got a horse. And I was just like, "What the <laughs> heck? I have no attachment to horses whatsoever." I know. Y'all all got horses, seriously? Yeah. I bet you wanted a horse. <laughs> I did want a horse because Rainbow Bright rides on rides a, a horse. I knew it. That's exactly what I was thinking. What it was for you? Yeah. And I got the dog. So you I'll got the dog. Trade. Oh Dogs man. <laughs> 
My, um, I've spent, you know, since I was 17, I've had guide dogs in my life. And so mm-hmm. I wanted a dog, but Aww. I didn't get a dog. And by the way, as a little trivia, my current guide dog's name is Petunia. Aww. <laughs> and you can't imagine how thrilled I was to get a dog with a Harry Potter name, even if it was Petunia. <laughs> she has some good qualities hidden very, very deep down. She's a golden retriever, so she's all good qualities. Oh, I love those. Sherry, <laughs> your your story about being able to purchase, you know, an, a copy of, of the book at the same time with being blind reminded me. Have you ever uh do you know about that episode of Arthur? It's that Arthur's on PBS Kids for those of you who haven't heard of the show. It's based on children's uh book series by Mark Brown. Um, the series has been going, like this TV series has been going for like 20 years. It's ridiculous. And wait, were, is it still on TV? It's still on. There's current episodes being what? made still. Adina Menzel was <laughs> wow. just on an episode. That's um, awesome. <laughs> but there was an episode where Prunella, it was supposed to be a parody of the craze around Harry Potter. And Prunella is like a super Potter fan, but it's not <laughs> Harry Potter. It's, it's Henry Scriva. And, and she, she buys an advanced copy and she's gloating to everybody because her copy's coming from England. And so she's getting a genuine UK copy, <laughs> special edition. And then she gets it and she's, she's waited. Everybody else has their copies, but she's waiting past. She, she didn't get it at midnight. She's waiting the next day. She gets her copy in the mail and it's a braille copy. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, oh, that's hilarious. and she about oh, like it. loses her mind because she can't get a copy of the book if now and they're not going to send it for three weeks and everybody's spoiling the story for her. Oh, Arthur has this weird that. thing where they always like blend like popular children's books with like <clears throat> vegetable themes and there's this whole thing where Francine is like now I know why Henry can grow kumquats out of his nose <laughs> oh man but she ends up actually wow. running into at the library. She runs into a, a blind girl and who who can read, obviously can read Braille. And she reads it aloud to her <laughs> and they read it together. And I was like, that is such a great episode. And then they end up being friends and they, like that friendship comes through in multiple episodes. And they still do stuff with Henry Screever. There's multiple parodies of that. <laughs> That is so cute. I used to love Arthur growing up. It's one of my favorites. Well, you know, there's a really cool thing, actually, about Braille Harry Potter books, Mm -hmm. because Braille books are very rare and usually pretty expensive. And whatever the best-selling book is today, it may never come out in Braille, and if it does, it might be in years. Mm -hmm. But um, there was an agreement made between J.K. Rowling and her publishers and a organization here in Boston, I think, called National Braille Press. And they arranged it so the last Harry Potter book would be delivered to people who ordered it the day of the release. That's unheard of. Wow. And because of that, blind kids, not to mention me, but I already had it on CD, but (laughs) blind kids got to read that book the day that their sighted friends were reading it to that is a so, that is so neat. Yeah, Harry thank Potter you, Joe. made a lot of splashes in the in the publishing world in ways we had never really seen before. It's neat that that was one of them that it could be enjoyed by everybody uh, as soon as possible. 
Yeah, um, and thank you for sharing that with us because I had never heard of any of that. Like I, I knew it was yeah. available in Braille, but I didn't know if all of them were or how soon they came out <laughs> after the printed version. So that's fascinating to me, and I'm sure it will be to a lot of our listeners that have never heard that before. So thank you. It takes up three shelves on my bookshelves. I was going to ask, because I, I, I thought that Braille usually took up more space than yeah. printed word, and so I didn't know if they were a lot bigger. It's in about 55 volumes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. And I That's own them all. Cool. That's so cool. Sorry, everybody. I'm adjusting my <laughs> mic again. <laughs> Listeners, if you were on Twitter, you probably saw my mic of nine years died. The mic my mother bought me when I started podcasting for audio fictions when that started. And uh, it literally fell apart in my hands after recording two and a half hours of Harry Potter video gaming for our Patreon sponsors. <laughs> and so, and so it, it, it's last, it's last good deed was recording Harry Potter. So yeah, at can, least it at least it made it through that uh, yes, recording. Yes, it made it through the whole thing, and it, it, what a wonderful send off for it. But yes, I recently purchased a gorgeous a uh, Yeti microphone from Blue, and it is blue. It is dark blue, and it is gorgeous. I went across town to get it because I wanted it in the color that I wanted because this mic was expensive. To find out how expensive, you can go online and search for it. Blue, if you would like to sponsor this show, you don't, but you should, because I am giving you quite an advertisement here. There are some amazing features on this mic. I don't think I've even unlocked nearly half of them yet. So expect for lots of weird audio on my end. Apologies (laughs) to Patrick, our editor this week. Because he's going to just be like, Michael, will you stop fidgeting with your microphone? (laughs) Sponsor us on Patreon to fund Michael's new microphone. (laughs) Just kidding. In fact, before we tell them about the chapter we're doing this week, Katie, you want to talk to them a little bit about Patreon? Well, sure. Patreon is why we are able to continue doing this amazing podcast. We have so many amazing people supporting us. Um, so if you would also like to become a sponsor, you can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Alohomora, and you can become a sponsor for as little as $1 a month. And this particular episode is sponsored by Fernanda Torres. So we want to give a huge thank you and round of applause to Fernanda. Yay. 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 Thank you. You're not thank funding you my so microphone, much. Fernanda. <laughs> <laughs> I bought it myself. <laughs> so you are enabling us to continue this project and make so many people happy and fuel all this amazing discussion and that makes us happy, and it's, it's fantastic. Um, we love talking to you guys over on Patreon, and Michael is going to be releasing his video game stuff fairly soon. Is that fair to say? Yes, yes, it is, actually, because one of the things that your guys' Patreon money is helping with uh, is that I can purchase some better uh, editing equipment because uh, I usually edit on Windows Movie Maker, which is the worst thing that ever existed ever. Windows, <laughs> you don't have to sponsor this show because <laughs> I'm not going to talk highly about your Movie Maker editor. Um, but yes, it's a nightmare. And so I need better better editing software to more uh, thoroughly, properly edit these episodes for you. So I will be getting some of that. Thanks to you guys. Um, you guys are making that possible so that we can make these uh, Let's Plays, which are some of our exclusive tidbits that we are going to be releasing, even better. So thank you, listeners. We appreciate it. 
Uh, Very and, much. And one of the other reasons that we thank you so much for sponsoring us on Patreon uh, is because we get to do episodes like this particular one. We're on a chapter revisit, and we are diving into the one book in the series that we have not revisited from the main series yet. We are going into Deathly Hallows, specifically Chapter 34, The Forest Again. We highly recommend you read uh, the chapter before listening to this episode. And if you really want to go the extra mile, you can go back and listen to our previous Deathly Hallows episode for Chapter 34, which was Episode 185, One Foot Through the Veil. Uh, it was a an excellent episode. Uh, I actually so hadn't listened good. to it for a while, and I wasn't on that one. Um, and none of us were actually. So this, you've got a whole new panel for this episode. Um, but yeah, make sure to listen to that if you want to hear some of the points uh, that we made on that episode. But with that, I guess we go in to chapter thirty-four, the forest again. Three turns should do it. Chapter revisit. The forest again. Harry has discovered his true fate. He must die at Voldemort's hand. Heading towards the Forbidden Forest, Harry passes a fallen Colin Creevy before passing on his valuable knowledge to Neville about Nagini to ensure Dumbledore's elaborate plan is complete. Realizing that his death is the close, Harry finally unlocks the Golden Snitch obtains the Resurrection Stone, and calls Lily, James, Sirius, and Remus to give him the necessary strength to face his demise. Reaching Voldemort's camp, the Dark Lord wastes no time, and with a simple Avada Kedavra, Harry Potter is dead. <laughs> the end. Oh, no. <laughs> I was already getting emotional just reading through that. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to make it without crying through this episode. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Well, good. I'll be in good company then. <laughs> this chapter's a rough one. Yeah. It is. Whew. And surprisingly short. I f- yeah. I, f- I forget often how short this chapter is. I was surprised by that as well. And I also was surprised before we get into more of the, the meat of what happens in this chapter. I was just so surprised um, at how um, the writing of this chapter is so powerful and Mm. i was intending to read through this chapter and take some notes to add to our doc and and before i knew it i was listening to it and before i knew it the chapter was over and i realized that i'd just become so entranced by the chapter that i had forgotten to like pay attention (laughs) and take notes (laughs) because it's just so beautifully written it really is. And speaking of short chapters, I meant to look up, um, I did look up what the shortest chapter in the entire series is, and it's mm. from book one. Um, it's the Potions Master, I believe. Um, but it is only 12 pages long, and this one is only 14. So it's not the shortest in the series, but it is one of. Um, I meant to look and see if there was a list, you know, to see how far down this one was. But it's probably top five, if I had to guess of shortest chapters but yeah you're you're right it's so rich in those few pages oh, that, that's so funny it. that it's it's it it's actually longer than the potions master because <laughs> that chapter i would assume was longer 
actually. And maybe it's because that chapter is more of an intro to the world and you feel like you're spending more time in maybe Harry's maybe. world because that, that the the whole the whole premise with this chapter is that Harry's realizing that he's he's run out of time. Um so it's kind of like it's supposed to go by fast, I guess. Yeah. Um, which it certainly does. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh Yeah, it's very fitting to the content. I think it's some of Joe's best writing in the entire series. Mm-hmm. Agreed. That makes me want to kind of go down um to a point we had, which is an actually <laughs> an episode 185 recall, where Eric very plainly stated, quote, this chapter doesn't do much for me. <laughs> oh, Eric. I remember <laughs> that. <Exactly> my thought. <laughs> and now, I, and now the, the interesting thing is Eric has what I think is an interesting argument. I'm, and I'm, for once upon a time, I might have actually agreed with him. I don't anymore. Um, and interestingly, this is, again, I say this about every chapter we re, we reread and in like outside of the rest of the book. This was a really interesting experience to read separated from the rest of the novel. It was. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, for some reason, it struck me, I think, more than it ever has. And, Maybe that is because it gets that we, we get this separation from the rest of the novel in a way that we're almost supposed to have, we're, we're supposed to have from the narration. Rowling really hammers home that Harry is kind of disconnected from the world throughout this mm-hmm. chapter. He's just so in shock that his, his connection to the mortal realm is almost basically gone. Um, but I think Rowling's writing has a lot to do with how we connect with this chapter. You all mentioned it, and it was constantly mentioned on the previous episode where everybody was like, but the writing. And what, <laughs> yes. is, what is it, though, about the writing in this chapter that sets it apart from the other chapters, do you guys think? I think the tone and the content match beautifully. And I think that she is good at that in general, but I think this chapter just really hits it on the nose of, of matching those two things together. Um, and, and as I said, I think it just sort of, it, it immerses you in a way that, um, is even above and beyond for Harry Potter, which I think is saying something. Also, I think in, Every case, well, at least as far as I can think off the top of my head, in every case before when Harry's had to face something dangerous, it's kind of been in the moment. It's happened. He has to react. Now he's just learned this horrible news. It's not happening right this minute, but it's going to. And he's having to face that he has to die. And I like how Joe presents that to us because he's not just jumping up ready to boldly go where no Harry Potter has gone before. <laughs> he's he's not wanting to do it. He doesn't want to die. His that line about how his heart was beating so frantically and everything, his his body and his mind and his soul, they want to survive. And yet he's still gonna do what he has to do. And I think she presented that so amazingly. I've never read anything like it. 
heroes always just go off and do what they have to do. Mm. I think it's a testament to um, Harry kind of knew that this was going to happen. He just didn't know. Um, (laughs) He knew, but he didn't. Um, And so I think while hearing the the news from the pensive is shocking. It's also not like, I think as readers, we also kind of just knew this was going to have to happen. Um, even if it was subconsciously. And so I think Harry has already started processing it a little bit without realizing it. Um, which is, which allows him to be so calm and so, um, he just kind of like floats through this whole chapter. Um, well, that's really, yeah. when you think about it, that, that was part of Dumbledore's plan was mm-hmm. to make sure Harry was in a state of mind where he could do something like this. And Harry recognizes that we, we read that in the narration that are, that's reflecting Harry's thoughts. I think this, this, that's why I think this chapter is so set up because Rowling is all, you know, her narration is almost always in Harry's head. Um, it's weird because the way that she does it, she can she can kind of go in and out of Harry's perspective mm-hmm. uh, very easily. Um, but that particular chapter, she never leaves Harry's head. I guess is kind of mm-hmm. what yeah. what does it for me. And by staying in his viewpoint the entire time, you you kind of it's almost like you become as breathless as he is. In those moments, yeah. you it, the the feelings that she's writing become so visceral. Rowling is really, I think, her talent really lies she in in being able to describe things that are indescribable. Like I don't know how she does this stuff. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. we've we've talked frequently about it's already amazing enough that she can describe kind of perfectly what it's like to be a teenager, and not only that, she does it very well from the perspective of a boy. Um, yeah. And now here she's doing a, a boy, 17 years old, who is marching to his death. And every moment she she picks is just and she 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 does these very small observant things about how Harry kind of realizes he's going to die. Like it's it's not it's it's not large and dramatic it's very subtle and and quiet you know he walks by Hagrid's hut and he thinks about he thinks all the way back to events in Sorcerer's Stone (laughs) and just like and not big events like quiet things like those days we went to Hagrid's hut and ate rock cakes or you know simple things like that yeah Um, and the reflections he's having are so profound um it's like the idea that he, when he realizes, you know, oh, there's people out there who are just taking their breaths for granted and every single one of my breaths means something right now. Um, like that's, that's insane. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And you're right. It's all in his head. There's so little dialogue. It's just mm-hmm. he talks to Neville and that's about it. Um, the rest of it is all just from within his mind and, 
within his heart. There's so much heart imagery and these quotes, like I very rarely highlight anything and I'm not, I'm even talking on my Kindle where I'm not doing any physical damage to a book. Um, <laughs> but even on there, I'm reluctant to highlight. I don't know why, but this read through and I read through it twice because I fell so hard in love with it again. I was highlighting all over the place. It was just like quote after quote after quote that were they just pull at your heartstrings so hard and put things in an, a way that you've never heard it before. Um, you're describing his heart as a funeral drum. It's like, mm. who would think of that other than yeah. Jeff? I mean, she's brilliant. Um, yeah, if I read all of the things I highlighted, it would take a while. So I'm not going to do that. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's all of the things you guys just said. I don't know that I have anything new necessarily to say other than that, but it's, it's profound. I'll just say that. I think I would have chills this entire episode. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, yeah. one of the things I noticed and wanted to point out, and this is kind of more back to the beginning of our, the points that we had here, but uh, I was, as I was going through it, I was, I was realizing that like, there's a lot there. This chapter has a lot of recalls, to almost every single book in the Harry Potter series. And some of those recalls are very overt. Um, and some of them I thought were interestingly a little more subtle. Like Harry remembers specific events that happened in previous books. He remembers Ron puking up slugs from Chamber of Secrets. He remembers uh, taking Norbert to the North Tower in Sorcerer's Stone. He's he's kind of going through the castle and his in in this way Rowling is kind of having his life flash before his eyes. Mm, yeah. And, oh yeah. I thought it was interesting how she's using each book. Because I I pulled out some quotes uh and kind of associated them l- was looking at how I associated them with each book and one, the the first one I I was looking at one of my one of the, the ones that really catches caught me was uh on page 693 of the U.S. edition, and it says, And Dumbledore had known that Harry would not duck out, that he would keep going to the end, even though it was his end, because he had taken trouble to get to know him, hadn't he? Dumbledore knew as Voldemort knew, that Harry would not let anyone else die for him now that he had discovered it was in his power to stop it. And that, like, immediately for me, recalled the conversations from Order and Half-Blood about fate mm-hmm. and destiny. And that idea that, like, Harry questions in Half-Blood where he kind of throws his hands up and says, well, I guess I can't escape fate. And Dumbledore says, you totally can escape fate, but then you wouldn't be who you are, basically. Right, yeah. You have a choice, but then that ties back to Chamber of Secrets with the idea of your choices make you who you are. Therefore, you will not run away. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's so yeah. interesting, too, the way that Harry talks about this, because um, he says, because he had taken the trouble to get to know him, hadn't he? Mm. And that makes it sound much more, like, cold and calculated. Like, Dumbledore also took the trouble to get to know Voldemort. And Harry is kind of describing it in the same way. Um, Harry draws and- a lot of comparisons to himself and Voldemort in this chapter. Yeah, and it also does not reflect very well on Dumbledore. No, it doesn't. No. <laughs> no. But Harry's also not accusing Dumbledore here. He's not right. angry at Dumbledore for this. He's just sort of acknowledging it and accepting it, which I thought was really interesting. I was angry enough for Harry, so. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so 
tell us a bit about your anger at Dumbledore. I know you had some thoughts on that, Sherry. Well, I have a love, not so love relationship with Dumbledore. That <laughs> um, probably changed as Harry's life grew and changed. But um, and I won't get into all of my thoughts because some of it goes back to things about Sirius, and that's not for this discussion. But um, <laughs> I just, you know. I don't like Snape, but his comment in the previous chapter about the pig to slaughter thing, that really got to me. And when Harry's accepting what Dumbledore wants him to do, though, of course, I would never want Harry to run away and not do it. At the same time, what was I, 45 or something when I read this book? Um, No, 50. No, can't be. Anyway, um, I I just found myself kind of raging, you know, you this child, this child should have a life and he's had misery and you know, nothing, a horrible home life, grown up alone and abused until he came to Hogwarts and now he has to just go give up his life and he's only seventeen. And I just wanted to as I put in comments to Katie, I wanted to toss Dumbledore off the astronomy tower again. (laughs) (laughs) And what I really wanted to do was grab Harry and hug him and take him away. (laughs) I've always found that so fascinating how strongly the fandom reacts to Dumbledore and his plan in, in the end, because I've, I've, and I don't know, is there something wrong with me? Because I've really <laughs> never felt that much ire towards Dumbledore with his plan. And maybe that's because I have, you know, and I've talked in previous episodes, my connections with Dumbledore and how I feel his choices were informed. And often I kind of think, you know, when we get to this point, I kind of think, well, what would you have had him do uh, otherwise? with the knowledge he had and with the way that things had to work out so perfectly. mm, There's nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. And the next chapter kind of saves Dumbledore because you realize Dumbledore expected that Harry would not die. Mm hmm. Yeah. and And I think that the next chapter coupled with the, the Lost Prophecy chapter in Order of the Phoenix really brings it home with Dumbledore and perhaps is the chapter why, like as much as I have problems with that chapter in order, more so because of how it was marketed as the, this is the tell-all chapter. And it was like, no, it's not. That's Half-Blood Prince. Half-Blood Prince is the tell-all book. Um, but Dumbledore, the thing Dumbledore does state is how much he loves and cares about Harry and how it has been so painful to put him through this um, and how it continues to be painful to put him through this. And, and I think Dumbledore has that throughout the whole experience. And, you know, in a way that the gleam of triumph from book four, in a way is kind of like Dumbledore being saying, yes, we've got him. <laughs> yeah. And Harry's Harry can maybe make it through this. Um, so I, I, I don't know. know. I, I guess I just, I, I put, I put my, I put a lot of trust in Dumbledore, uh, and I don't tend to get very angry with him in this, in this moment. Yeah, I've definitely been angry with him at other points during the series, but when it mm-hmm. comes to the plan itself, 
I'm kind of with you, Michael. Like, I don't know what else he could possibly have done in that situation. And really, the anger should be towards Voldemort because he's the one that set all of this into motion by killing his parents and trying to kill Harry. Um, if he had not heard the prophecy, if he had not followed the prophecy, if he had not been a psychopath, you know, all of this would have been avoided. So really, it's his fault, and he's the one we should be angry at. Um, I'm already angry point. at Dumbledore during the points, like in the beginning of, uh, oh gosh, which one is it? Order, where yeah. Harry is stuck at Privet Drive yeah. for two months, where everyone else is at the Order. Of <laughs> oh, yeah. And, oh, that one kills me, um, which I think I've made apparent on a past episode. <laughs> so there are definitely moments where I he's not my favorite character. And thankfully, he apologizes for many of the things I have issue with. Like, he admits when he's done something wrong. He can see the fault of his own when something goes, like when Sirius dies, he's like, it's my fault. I should have done this, that, and the other. I could have done things to prevent this, and I didn't. Um, so I, I, yeah, I try to take his apologies as at face value. Like, he literally is remorseful. He's not just giving Harry lip service. He he really feels remorseful. Um, so, yeah, there are times we wish he did things differently, but he's also human, and he makes mistakes like the rest of the characters so, but, but in this chapter, but less mistakes than most. <laughs> yes, his guesses are usually right. <laughs> but I wanted to map out just a few more of these connections because I mean, already that connection unearthed. I think a lot of great discussion, and I wanted to kind of reference some of the other things that um, the these these recalls to the other books bring out in this chapter. And the there were two quotes that I felt uh, had a really major recall. One is from page 695. Um, as Harry's leaving Hogwarts and he looks at the Great Hall to try and get a glimpse of everybody, the narration says he felt he would have given all the time remaining to him for just one last look at them. But then, would he ever have the strength to stop looking? It was better like this. And uh, on page 699, after he has used the Resurrection Stone and he can see Sirius... Uh, James, Lily, and Lupin, uh, he, the narration says, specifically about his mother, he could not speak. His eyes feasted on her, and he thought that he would like to stand and look at her forever, and that would be enough. And I thought these two mm. quotes immediately brought me back to Sorcerer's Stone and specifically mm -hmm. the Mirror of Erised. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, we, you know, we were talking about so much about Dumbledore, the Mirror of Error said it was training for this. Like. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, whoa. <laughs> I never thought that. Isn't That's me? awesome. Mind blown. Right? <laughs> like, I just, when I made that, I've, I've made that connection actively before in my reading, and I really feel like this is intentional on Rowling's part. It has to be. Yeah. Has to because be. Now the, that you the, say it, the, oh, the, feast, the, the way that she describes Harry kind of feasting his eyes on on his parents is very is almost the same language I think yeah. that she uses. Yeah. Um, he wants to fall through the glass. He wants to reach through. He hungers to touch, kind of touch them. Um, and yeah, I just thought that was really because we've we've talked before about how you know the theory of how omnipotent Dumbledore is. And mm. what he's kind of let, what he might be making happen. And 
the discussions that even Pottermore has brought up with the mirror of error set of like, hmm, Dumbledore just left this priceless mirror in a random classroom while he was tinkering <laughs> with it. And Harry just happened to wander by it. <laughs> uh-huh. so. But I mean, I don't think all the way back there, I don't think Dumbledore knew then that Harry was going to have to die. Was Do it we think? Be- well, Dumbledore says in the next, well, no, he says in Order, Order of the Phoenix that he knows that Harry, he knows from the prophecy that Harry does have to have a confrontation with Voldemort. That's very true. Dumbledore also doesn't have the res- Resurrection Stone yet at that no. point. No, he does not. Correct. Um, but he knows it exists because he's obsessed with the Hallows. Um, do we know when he actually gets that? Or wait, yeah, we do because it's he burns his hand with it. Never yep. mind. Uh, <laughs> sorry, my bad. <laughs> and the other, the last one that I wanted to pull up, and there, you know, there are more. There are, and there are more that are even more literal than these ones. Um, and this one also, like, this one really, this was the one that blew my mind when I realized it last night. But uh, it's, uh, the Dementor's chill did not overcome Harry. He passed through it with his companions, and they acted like Patronuses to him. And of course, this is a recall to Prisoner of Azkaban. But the thing that really caught me when I thought about it was all four of these individuals who are with Harry that are brought back with the, resurrec- with the Resurrection Stone are all major players in Harry's ability to cast a Patronus in Prisoner, specifically. That's true. That's so good. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because we've talked about how, like, there's, and we can even ask this question of, you know, why these four? Because there's, there have, the fandom has asked, like, should, you know, should it be these four? Are there people who are missing? Are there people who, you know, we know who are dead who definitely shouldn't be there, Snape? Um, <laughs> you, you know, why? And, and, and on the, on, on, uh, ep- the previous episode, um, for this chapter, there was the discussion that, um, there was even discussion from, uh, that I think was brought about by Eric that maybe these entities aren't even real. And how did Harry call them specifically? Oh, we'll get into what they are in a minute. I have feelings on that. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. But yeah, I mean, that, I was just really struck at this reread about how many references to the other books are there and what purpose they are serving in the narrative. Um, I'm hoping that the listeners will go and pick out some other ones for us. Um, interestingly, the one that I couldn't, I mean, I felt like it was the, ob- it was almost too obvious and I was looking for a more subtle one. I couldn't really find in my read a subtle one for Goblet. The obvious one to me is that Harry has faced Voldemort head on before. Um, mm-hmm. and he has also recalled his parents kind of from the dead before to talk to them. Um, that seems to be the obvious reference. But I was, I, I don't know if there's another one that's layered in there somewhere. Not that I caught, but maybe one of our listeners will, I hope. Yeah, I, th- I think the, um, Prairie Incantatum is the, is, is the, one. the big one. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. I'm really fascinated by, um, just the, this last one that you called out about the Dementors, um, the actual magic behind, the Dementors not being able to affect Harry in this moment. Mm-hmm. And 
I'm wondering if it's, you know, just because his heart is so full of people who love him at this moment, or if it's because he is the master of death in this moment. Ooh. Ooh. The the master of death thing, interestingly, I thought came a little late. I, like I, I like because people point out that, and we we'll, we can talk about this a little later that the the hallows are together for a brief moment. Um, right. He doesn't have the one, but he is the master. He is an ownership right of the one. That's true. I never really associated this with the hallows. I associated this almost really based on what's being said in the narration that the this is this is almost like <laughs> this is Patronus Maxima. Yeah. Expecto Patronum Maxima. <laughs> I love it. Like Oh, I would love to see some fan art of that. Of him walking with his oh, companions yeah. and just, just this kind of shield above them, surrounding them with the dementors above. Oh. Listeners, somebody do it. <laughs> <laughs> I am not an artist, so don't expect me to. <laughs> but yeah, I, I it's like this is a because a Patronus is a is a representation of like a of a soul guardian. Um yeah. but these are literal guardians of Harry's soul. And um, one of them yeah. is actually Harry's Patronus as well. So Yes, yeah, James. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> to I know one of our fans has asked before if you can have a human patronus. Well here you go. <laughs> Got four of them. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's also an interesting question you had, Michael, about who else could have been there. Mm. Oh, my brain's kind of going blank. Sherry, do you have <laughs> no? Because I always thought those were the perfect for for him to have there. They're the ones he wants when he's in distress. Mm-hmm. You know, in the past, yeah, that. that's who he's wanted when he's in distress. He's wanted one of those four, and probably the ones he feels most guilty about. And we know Harry is loaded with guilt. Yeah, yeah, but it's interesting that like. If if it was a guilt thing, like I would have imagined Fred being there or Colin being there. Right, or Cedric. And none of those people are there. Um and and I think correctly, none of those people are there. I, d- I don't think that they really have a spot mm-hmm. in this moment. Yeah. Um and so I, I do think that guilt probably plays a little bit of a part of it, especially for Lupin, but um but that that's not really the driving force for what like, brings right, Lupin yeah. back. I, I think Sherry was much more cor- correct in in the observation about people who Harry sought comfort from before. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. More per- parental like if, fingers who he's lost. If Moody had been actual Moody the entire time he knew him, maybe. But <laughs> since he was fake Moody for a year, yeah, I can see why he's not there. I think another one people have pointed out, more so be- just because Lupin is there, is people want Tonks to be there. And I can, as a Lupin fan, I can see why she's not there. Mm-hmm, um, me too. Yeah. She is not as connected intrinsically to yeah. Harry as, as Lupin is, which is funny because we've talked in previous episodes too. There's been, there, that has frequently been mentioned of like, Harry and Lupin don't know each other. They're barely friends. And like, oh, but no, 
They <laughs> like, I do think there is a loss in the connection in a lot of ways. There's like a lot of lost potential between the two of them and their friendship. Yes. Yeah. But there is a deep connection there and it is well, clearly I, evidenced here. I think, you know, even if the events of prisoner or a prisoner had happened and then Lupin completely disappeared from the story altogether, that, Lupin still would have had a place. I think so too. Um, I think that the events of Prisoner so strongly um, affected Harry Mm -hmm. that um, that you know even growing apart from Lupin um, didn't really matter in this moment. I think these four are the ones that to Harry are his family, and that's not to negate what the Weasleys are, but. These are his family, his parents, mm-hmm. his godfather, his almost godfather. You know, it's. I think that's part of why they're there too. That's yeah, why they're well, perfect. I think your your favorite teacher, and yes, yeah. I'm saying that on Harry's <laughs> behalf that Lupin is his favorite teacher. <laughs> he is. is is somebody who greatly informs your life. Yeah. I could I can definitely mm-hmm. say that from personal experience. I'm sure many of us can. Um that a that a teacher in a way can be like a mother or a father with some yeah. of the things that they contribute to your life. So and yeah, it did and that all I felt tied back perfectly into that observation of how these four play a role in, in Harry's ability to cast a Patronus. Um to to not only guard himself but be a guardian for others. Um, which he is going to do. He is marching to his death to save other people's lives. He knows that. He doesn't know that the, that it's going to work the same way that Lily's, um, death worked, but he knows that people will probably stop dying as much, that the battle will end. Um, he goes in with that conscious notion. So, but yeah, it's, it's, I just thought, oh, well, he, you know, the, re- the reason he the the reason he even w- wants to learn to cast a Patronus is not just to protect himself from the Dementors, but it's to learn how to detach himself from dwelling on the death of his parents because he can right. hear it. And I um, think that points to how important Lupin was to him because um, Lupin is able to give him for the first time sort of more context about who his parents were. You know, up mm-hmm. until this point, he meets a lot of people who know, who knew his parents and who say, Oh, you have your mother, mother's eyes, or, you know, you, you're just like your father or whatever. But, um, Lupin is the first person to really humanize his parents and, and provide Harry with sort of a concept of what they were like. Um, and that, sticks with Harry forever. Those are amazing points. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was I so just much. I just want to point out here like as we're wrapping up talking about these quotes from this chapter um that I think it's really evident um Rowling's writing skill and also literary skill being able to weave this web of things all the way through the seven books is so impressive. And I think we see even her improvement throughout the books here that she is at her pinnacle right here in this chapter. Um, and, and I think for me, at least, um, I, I don't have 
a lot of love for the epilogue. Um, and I, I just don't think the writing is as good. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that we know that she wrote a lot of that early on. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, yeah. built on it and edited a little bit at the end. But I think mm-hmm. juxtaposing it with a chapter like this, where it's like her skill is so evident. Um, I just think it's interesting to see her writing progression throughout the books. Absolutely. I think the the thing that really boosts that is we know from her that this chapter was in her head very early, even if it wasn't written early. Right. Like this, this was an end goal chapter. Yep. yep. Um, yeah. And that's what makes it so. That's what you know. Well, that's why these these callbacks to the other books work so well, and why this chapter is as effective as it is, is because it's been built up so properly. And I've got a couple of quotes um, yeah. that I don't think will take too much discussion time. <laughs> um, I'll start with the second one because it has it goes with the theme a bit better. Um, it says, "Why had he never appreciated what a miracle he was? Brain and nerve and bounding heart." It would all be gone, or at least he would be gone from it. Mm. <clears throat> First of all, oh my god, I love that writing. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, it, ah, it just can't even. Like, how does that come out of somebody's brain and and nerves and bounding paper? hearts? <laughs> it's, it's beautiful imagery, and I, I just you know we never think of life that way either. We just go day to day. We are who we are. Very few of us have to think about what a miracle life is and our brains and nerves and bounding heart and how it all works together. And yeah. So, Oh, I just realized too, I made a wizard of Oz reference and those are all the things from Oz. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) Thank you, JK Rowling. (laughs) You validated my point. (laughs) Also, Katie, um, this note you put there, now that song's in my head, so thanks. Thank you. Good. <laughs> yeah, Katie was uh, pointing out that this is basically the Tim McGraw song, Live Like You Were Dying. So Remember now when they my played on, that on the radio, like, all the time, guys? Oh, they used to constantly. Like constantly. <laughs> but that's the first thing that popped into my head when I read this. I was like, this is what a person with a terminal illness goes through. Those are the, the people that have these thoughts. They have the time to have these thoughts. They have the force, the foresight um, to think about these things. Most people, you die unexpectedly or you're, you know, so old that you're kind of out of your mind by that time. Um, but the fact that he had the time, even though it was only half an hour, to go through some of these stages of grief and, and these thoughts that most people never think about. Mm-hmm. I love that she included that. Um, and I hope it reminds us, even those of us without terminal illness, to take, not take our lives for granted and just slow down every once in a while and just appreciate what a miracle we are um, yeah. Yeah. and be thankful that we have a full life that we get to lead and don't have to fight against an <laughs> evil psychopath that wants to murder us. <laughs> yeah, I think Rowling really drives that point home in this in in, in a way that doesn't beat you over the head. It's a very yeah. thoughtful yeah. way of kind of saying you know, how you, there, it's important to live, to live your life in a valuable way, to give your life meaning and, um, not waste it away because there are people yeah. out there who, who may not have as long, um, yeah. and treasure every day. So yeah. yeah, it's very, I really like too about this quote, how Harry 
is once again recognizing kind of the and almost the the ephemeral nature of the physical world. Um, mm-hmm. Because my favorite, the, everybody often points to the forest again as one of their favorite, most emotional chapters in Deathly Hallows. It's a it's a top favorite for a lot of people. I think even Rowling has said that it's one of her favorite chapters, and it should be for the writing. Um, but mm-hmm. the the one that always gets me is actually uh, the Godric's Hollow chapter, specifically the end when Harry and Hermione are standing at. Lily and James's graves and Harry has, I think a major epiphany in his, in his learning curve of about death in that chapter where he, he kind of, he falls to pieces because he realizes that they are just bodies in the ground. And it's, it's such a striking moment that he has kind of, that's another moment that's been led up to the whole series where he's looking to have some kind of connection with his parents and he gets, you know, as close as you can in the physical world to it. He find he, he goes to their gravestones and he, it's almost like he, he was kind of expecting that they would come back to life if he went there. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of the unspoken thing about that chapter because Hermione really doesn't want to go to Godric's Hollow and I think she understands why that might be a mistake. And not only because of Voldemort, but because of what it could do to Harry. And Harry has that realization of, oh, I got here and I got to my parents and they are still dead. And I think he's kind of having that realization here that there's... The, the 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 next part part of that realization of you know that what we who we are as human beings in life is amazing um but you know you leave that behind when you die well and yeah. and this piece here um it would all be gone or at least he would be gone from it mm-hmm. i think is really moving um because he's realizing that the whole world doesn't stop when you die Mm-hmm. Just yeah. your world. And mm. um and so the people around him are still gonna have to finish fighting this war. They are going to mourn his death, they're going to move on, um, and they're gonna keep living their lives without him. Um That's a pretty profound realization yeah. to have. Yeah. Definitely. And I think it also shows that he already believes in an afterlife full of those people that he loves um, from his experiences, seeing them in the mirror, through the Priorian Cantatum, and talking to ghosts. Um, and I'm wondering, would he, be, would he have been able to march so bravely towards death without that knowledge? Hmm. Like, he has a <laughs> leg up on regular human beings. Like, we don't know what happens <laughs> after we die. But he's talked to people that have crossed over. Um so I think he at least believes there's something to look forward to, that he's going to see those people again. Um, but if he had never had those experiences, I don't know. Do you think that would have changed anything? Ooh. Ooh. That's a big <laughs> question. Sorry, I forgot I had that question. No, it's a, but no, it's a good. It's really it's good. Great. Huh. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is a valid answer. Well, and I had never even thought of it that thought of it that way. I was thinking about like 
that this is a demonstration of he feels like he has led a full life and he doesn't seem like he has a lot of regrets um, that he's leaving behind. Um, but I, I think you might be right that, um, that he's at least comforted by the fact that, um, he has been able to, to communicate with, um, with people who have died. And so that maybe there is something for him ahead of him. I don't know, man. Oh, this is this is interesting because this really this does enter the territory of harry potter as a religious parallel and Mm -hmm. you're basically saying would harry still have faith um yeah would he would he believe in in this in what he can't see um and and because the thing is, even with all of these confirmations about kind of some kind of existence after death, it's kind of been hammered home that the mirror, Priorian Cantatum, and ghosts are not death, like proper. Yeah. Like, That's true. They're like a shade of it, but they're not the proper version. And that really, you can't connect with whatever is completely on the other end. So. Harry has a, I do think you're right that Harry has a slight leg up on that over us, but I think Rowling's also made sure to kind of account for that and say not entirely. Mm-hmm. Harry has also experienced the veil, um, mm. which um, I think that was pretty clear that while Harry couldn't communicate with um the the souls or whatever it was on the other side of the veil um that they were there and they were interacting with each other um at least that was the impression that i got from that experience um and so maybe he's not thinking about that directly in this moment but that that has sort of informed his worldview um having had that that experience and and we know just based on his reaction to the veil that it was very striking um i think that's that's absolutely correct that's the veil right. is the veil is another representation of faith and we see that in how each of the characters react to it because not everybody reacts positively to the veil when they when they hear it not everybody can hear the same things from the veil um in the in in order and that makes me think of another popular children's book, uh, The Polar Express, which is also a parable about faith because Santa Claus is Jesus is, is basically, <laughs> is basically the idea. And the, the idea at the end for, for those of you who haven't read The Polar Express, go read it for goodness sakes. What are you doing? But the ending is the is the idea that the the boy can the the boy in the story can hear the the sleigh bell, and that as he grows up, people in his life can't hear it, but he still can. And I think that's that's very equatable to this idea that Harry's exp- had an experience that was that gave him a sense of faith. I also think as to whether Harry would have gone ahead and done this so. Uh, I don't know the what word I want. I was going to say confidently, but that's not it. But readily, 
Yeah, so readily. Thank you. Mm. Um, I think that even if he hadn't had all these possibly supernatural experiences with people from the other side, I think he would have still gone forward and done what he had to do because he's doing it for the living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. That is a very good point. I think, too, we have uh, a lovely, one of my favorite quotes from the series, and that's all the way back in Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, you know, take... If you put all of these examples aside, the veil, prior incantatum, ghosts, the mirror, Dumbledore says from the start, death is but the next great adventure. And this yes. knowledge mm-hmm. of, you know, the, yeah. the, and then, and that's another kind of piece as there's another series for you listeners. If you haven't read, if you haven't read the full series of unfortunate events, there's a really on the nose parallel that Snicket uses about the great unknown. Which is death, if you didn't get it, by the way. <laughs> um, and and I, I think there's uh, there's this element of how simultaneously frightening and fascinating that is to us as human beings. And Dumbledore has a heightened knowledge of that and passes that on to Harry in when he's eleven. Um, that that difference between people like them and people like Voldemort. Yeah. yeah. That's an excellent point. Thank you for bringing that quote back. I love that quote. That's one of my favorite to... quotes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I just have a tendency to hyper-focus on whatever chapter <laughs> I'm currently reading and then everything else flies out of my brain. So thank you. <laughs> Even from this chapter, um, I, Sherry pointed out um, the quote, uh, where was it? I lost it. Oh, um, his will to live had always been much stronger than his fear of death. Um, which sort of, I, I don't think that, you know, Harry thinks about that quote from Dumbledore, you know, frequently, but I think that maybe it informed him more than he realized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can we talk about Colin? Because Katie wants to talk about Colin. <laughs> Only if you want me to like start sobbing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's inevitable. This, We've been talking about death all this time and coping with death, so let's talk about Colin. Yeah, this, this might do it. Um, <laughs> let's see how well we do. Are, yeah, these are actually not my words. Um, I would like to thank Jay Dozier, who was our guest on the last episode. Yay! She made this comment two years ago wow. on episode 185 about this chapter and about Colin. And when I read it, it was just like, Nail meathead. Oh my god. <laughs> so good. And I could not have said it any better. So I'm just going to read this and see if I can make it through. Okay. I think it's actually really significant that Harry sees him right before he walks into the forest to meet Voldemort and sacrifice himself. Colin's small body, tiny in death, represents all that Harry is giving up his life for, indeed, what he has given his whole life to fight for already the innocent and victimized whose lives have been significantly impacted or taken senselessly for one person's lust for power. Here, Harry reminds me so much of someone willingly joining the military. By Harry putting his life on the line, others don't have to lose theirs. By Harry walking willingly into the battle, others can have the chance to go on living. Harry walking past Colin's body on the way to the forest perhaps gives gives him an even greater resolve to follow through with his plan. 
the Colin who adored him, who wanted nothing more than his autograph, the Colin who was joyful, joyfully overwhelmed with the magic of the wizarding world and all that went along with it. This person is so appropriate in this moment because he is the epitome of innocence, naivete, and purity, albeit in a sometimes annoying package. <laughs> Colin's death represents the worst effects of war, not only of death, but of children, and why it is necessary to fight evil. I am. I mean, yeah. Wow. Yeah. All of that. All of that. I mean, I, I, I'm so sensitive to his death and I'm not sure why, but his, I think, I mean, I, I cried already over Hedwig when I read this book. I had already cried over Dobby. Um, probably Fred, but then (sighs) Colin and for some reason, and it's just such a short, you know, they talk about him for like three sentences and, and then they move on. But it just got me um, that this this tiny kid came back because he believed so much in this cause and he believed so much in Harry and admired Harry so much and wanted to be like him that he was that he was willing to risk his life for this purpose. Um, I. I get mad at Joe for killing him, but at the same time, <laughs> with the reasons that Jay just pointed out, I, I kind of get it um, in a sad, sad way. No, I, I don't think it's coincidence that you, you know, mentioned the other deaths you mentioned, Hedwig and Dobby. These three, the, this trio of deaths is are are the you know the senseless deaths of innocence, and yeah, and, and you know Hedwig represents kind of a literal. Like, or a more metaphorical innocence, the of Harry's innocence, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. Dobby. Dobby represents more of a uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? He's he's a, a oppressed innocence. Um, yeah, and Colin yeah. was just just innocent. He was just a kid. So, which <laughs> I think is why. Um, and and you know, Harry even kind of feels the same way about. Um, I think the most equivalent death in the previous books was Cedric. Um, and which is, which is why, and I hate to use this as a point to beat cursed child with, but this is, this is why, uh, Craig Bowker Jr., who cares? (laughs) Like, I think this is exactly why that doesn't work for me personally anyway, is because Mm -hmm. that is just kind of like that death is trying to be this. In the way that Jay right. described it, um, yep. But I think it's missing these layers. Um, yes, that Colin's character has had built built into him already. I think, but yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah, I think because a lot of people people tend to not discuss Colin's death past saying why. <laughs> so. <laughs> Which was my first reaction and when I was going to type and then I was like, wait, there's there's more to say than just why. Uh, Fun fact, so Colin's death was the only the death that was spoiled for me. Aww. Oh, really? Because I woke up the next morning and my friends, this is after my crazy Harry Potter party. I had been reading almost all night. I stayed up all night cleaning up while my friends slept. And then I just, <laughs> I face planted into my bed. And then probably late, like late in the morning, around like eleven ish, I got up and they were all sitting around the dining room table eating breakfast. And my friend Sarah Louise, who just got married, um, 
did had felt the need to spoil that one for me. I think because she just needed to say it, so she was just like she just looked up at me as she was reading her book and she went, "Michael, Colin Crazy died." And I was different. Louise. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only death that was that that was spoiled for me in the whole book. Someone did that to me with Order of the Phoenix. I mean, I had barely started the book and somebody emailed me and the subject line was, Serious Dies! Uh, That's the worst. I almost couldn't go on. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Spoilers, people. None of those, please and thank you. Well, I'm I'm a little bit bummed too. Um, we that this was not in the movie. Um, at MuggleNet Live, yes. Sean Biggerstaff was talking about filming this scene, um, and the fact that he filmed it and it didn't make it into the movie um, really bums me out. <laughs> I'm me too. I'm very strongly inclined to suspect that it wasn't Colin who died. It was probably Nigel in the you movie. Probably. Version. But which would yeah, still we hadn't seen Colin in a while. No, and yeah, he left the. Funnily enough, despite the the actor who played Colin left the movies, he came back to voice and motion capture Colin for the fifth video game. So huh. if oh. you're looking to see him again, he's there. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I don't think he returned for for Deathly Hallows, and I'm I'm suspecting that because the audience got way more familiar with Nigel and he was basically a Colin stand in. Um, he was probably used for that scene. Well, and it it wouldn't have had the effect that it had in the books anyway, because the movies really never explored that relationship with Colin, um, past the, Hey, I have a camera and I'm super annoying. <laughs> and, and, oh, I have to be here because I'm important to the plot. And otherwise, I probably would have been cut. <laughs> Spe- okay, since we're on other characters here. Speaking of characters who don't get enough screen time, and this one never gets enough screen time anywhere, Harry and Ginny. Can we? <laughs> yeah. No, I think they had plenty of screen time. It's just that all their screen time was bad. It was sucks. <laughs> I, I just I find it. Mm, and maybe you know we've we've talked before about how even on the page, there's sometimes if some of the fandom feels that there's something lacking about Harry and Ginny, and as lovely as it is that. Ginny is literally the last thing Harry thinks about before he dies. Um, mm-hmm. he, he specifically thinks about kissing her. And I, I don't know. For some reason, I am one of those people still who does not... The, that line just kind of stops me and takes me out for a minute because I'm just like... Oh yeah, Harry and Ginny kiss, I guess. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I'm kind of with you. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's because it makes sense narratively that Harry would think of Ginny because of course she is the love of his life and he will be married to her once he gets through this ordeal and all that jazz. But I guess because we have spent more time with many, many other characters it just strikes me as just like that. That's almost the only part of writing that I'm just like, hmm, okay, I'll buy it because I have to. But yeah. that part doesn't really do anything for me. I don't feel the 
the beauty and almost the sensuality of that line that she wants mm-hmm. me to have. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just I know, I don't think it's just you at all. I mean, they have they've been apart this entire book. <laughs> yeah. Like, why do we care at this point? <laughs> I don't know. I I read it a little bit differently in that um I think in that last moment he is just looking for a little bit of of comfort and safety and that being with Ginny and kissing Ginny is like the the icon in Harry's brain of comfort and safety. And so that's immediately where his brain goes um, when he is, is scared in this last moment. And I think that's really beautiful. I thought so too, Beth, actually. I, I really liked that, that moment, that thought that it was his last thought. I liked it a lot. I want to like it. <laughs> <laughs> Help us like it, please. I, know, like, I guess it's just because I often think to admit, you know, the movies have forget their kisses in the movies. That ruins. Everything. Oh, <laughs> Do they like you know touch each other's shoulders and that's like kind of it. <laughs> their kisses have no chemistry whatsoever in the films. But I, I even then, I guess you know, like I think to their you know a major. A major kiss interaction in Hallows and Ron, it's played off for laughs because Ron interrupts it. And it's kind of like Ron kind of berates Harry for even kissing Ginny because he's just like, how dare you? You broke up with her. And like, I guess it's just and and because we haven't gotten to see a lot of those moments between the two of them rolling kind of I feel like that moment where the two of them go off and talk in a locked room at the beginning is kind of where she's just like, I'm gonna try and get this somewhere and make you get to, you get to see a little bit. I guess that, like in a way, I almost find the the piece of writing she has done she did earlier in the book that Rowling herself likes, the part where Harry's using the Marauders map to watch Jenny. Oh, I love that. Some, like that works better to me than this line. Yeah, I yeah. guess I really I though that. like I do like the interaction the this or lack thereof of interaction that he has with her the moment where I really like that idea that he goes by and she senses him without seeing him. I like that too. Yeah. I, I, do, me, I always, always thought that, that is deeply romantic. That idea that she knows mm-hmm. he's there, even though she can't see him like the wow. Like, yeah. Yeah. That I like. <laughs> oh, here we go. Another <laughs> smash. <laughs> <laughs> I I referenced the other day I was I was home over the weekend visiting my family and I referenced something about a Thor cup and <laughs> my mom was like what and my dad was like my dad was like oh, that's funny <laughs> <laughs> all Alohomora listeners will always know that reference that's for right. I feel like Alohomora listeners who have never even seen Thor get that reference now. <laughs> You know, I think one reason I like that scene, that last thought of Harry's, is, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but from the very first book, when Harry noticed Ginny running after the train, laughing and crying, and I said to my friend, at the end, they're going to get married. 
Mm. No way. <laughs> right back then. And so I felt like having that right at the beginning of his adventures and then when he thinks he's dying, having that be his last thought, it just seemed like like that circle closing that is nice. for me. You're making it work, Sherry. Yeah. <laughs> You're make, you've come closer than anyone to making this work. Well, I think that's why it works for me because I always saw them together from the very first scene that's with her in the books, of course. That's so nice. See, I hardcore shipped Harry Cho Chang for quite a while, so there you go. <laughs> Sorry, that gets a raspberry for me. I got no love for Cho. Well, and there's there's another character that Harry runs into that we haven't talked about yet. And I know Sherry had a few things to say about Neville and his role in the story. Yeah. I, I really like that. Harry speaks to Neville here at this part. He's the only one he speaks to. And ostensibly he's telling him to make sure that somebody besides Ron and Hermione know. But for me, I found it very symbolic because either one of them could have been the prophecy boy. And Neville proved in this past year that he was equal to that task if it had happened, if it had fallen to him. And I think that this was a way of that circle closing, too. Harry and Neville both bring about the end of Voldemort. I love it so much. It gave me chills. (laughs) I really like that makes me think of that. That makes me recall, actually, in a weird way to Goblet of Fire in that two two characters are sharing a fate that they shouldn't necessarily be sharing as dictated by a prophecy you know the yeah cedric wasn't right. supposed to go to the graveyard and he is literally called the spare yeah um, and harry you know there there's the, the 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 cup was not meant to be taken by two people but that's always what undoes voldemort is that two people more than one person more than harry is involved in this in this kind of dance of fate. And I think that's excellent to point out that, yeah, Neville, Neville could have been the prophecy focus, the, the, the boy who lived in, in a way, Harry is handing off a little bit of that to him. Mm -hmm. They're both, they are both still fulfilling the prophecy. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so interesting too, because Harry knows about the prophecy and Harry also, I believe, right, knows that Neville could have been yes, the subject does. of the prophecy and wasn't. Um, but Neville doesn't know any of that. Nope. And Neville is just like, he's just fighting the fight just yeah. because it's the right thing to do. Um, and he doesn't have any idea how close he came to that being his actual fate. Um yeah. And I love how Harry takes on the role of Dumbledore right here. Mm-hmm. He even says that. Like, he must be like Dumbledore. Keep a cool head. Make sure there are backups, others to carry on. Yeah. Just like, oh my God, Harry, you're <laughs> killing me. But it's so smart at the same time. Um, I mean, it's like, who else in this series with 30 minutes to live <laughs> would have the forethought, oh, I need to tell someone else to kill the snake just in case. Well, you know, I, technically, I'm so impressed with Harry. technically, the only other person who kind of did that in in less time was Snape. <laughs> he, yeah, he yes. kind of did that. <laughs> he left it really to the last second. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was uh, yeah. there was a lot of chance in that one. No kidding. <laughs> <sighs> but 
But at least he was already planning. I'm kind of curious, um, after all of this is done, does Harry tell Neville about the prophecy and that Neville could have been the subject of the prophecy? I think he lets it slip over dinner one night by accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> Where was that scene in Cursed Child? <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like... I, w- I wonder if Harry would... I, I feel like they're almost... Especially after Neville has done what he's done, I feel like Harry would almost feel he has the right to know that. I agree. Yeah. 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 And and it, in a way that it's almost like the question you asked Beth about should Dumbledore have told Harry you know that he was a horcrux it's it's almost like there was there was a there there was a time to tell Neville this and it was not before this moment. Because right. Right. Yeah. Neville Absolutely. would not have been able to handle that information in previous years I don't think. Yeah. Now we mentioned Snape, and I can't help but bring up this quote because we had kind of referenced it earlier. Um, but on page 697, as Harry, as Harry sees Ginny, the narration says he wanted to be stopped, to be dragged back, to be sent home. But he was home. Hogwarts was the first and best home he had ever known. He and Voldemort and Snape, the abandoned boys, had all found home here. And we talked a little bit about how Harry is comparing, being in his mind, comparing himself to Voldemort, and in this instance, to Snape. What do you guys? What do you guys think the the purpose is aside from not making Dumbledore look so great? <laughs> <laughs> Katie, you had a really great point. I don't know how great it is, but a <laughs> point. Um, like Snape. He's just found out the real story behind Snape. So he hasn't had much time to process, but I feel like he's already starting to. He's already starting to forgive him, to pity him, to understand him. Um, But Voldemort, the person he is going to be killed by, he compares himself to him in this moment. And I also wonder, you know, this close to his own death, is he finally able to begin feeling pity for Voldemort, even if only a little bit? I think that started in uh, Half-Blood Prince because I think he felt pity for Tom Riddle. Well, Dumbledore asks him that very question. Well, of course he denies it, but yeah, I always got the feeling that he actually did, but he didn't want to admit it. Oh, he did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely did. And I think you're right that this is like to compare Voldemort in this way that almost is favorable um, to say, yeah, we were all abandoned. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's a pretty big step because we know that, you know, in the next chapter, uh, Dumbledore commends this ability of Harry's to be so empathetic because Harry will try and Harry's thought when he sees Voldemort's broken soul is to help it not he's he's repulsed by it but he wants to help it yeah yeah um so i think this is i think that's a great thing to point out that hey he's he he understands the feeling a little bit here and that might be how he he harry knows by the end that he needs to communicate that to voldemort to give voldemort his last shot 
Mm-hmm. Interesting, too, that he's still calling him Voldemort and not Tom. Yeah, I don't think he's to that place yet. Yeah, like at the end, definitely, but it would have been, I don't know why it would have changed anything for me, but I just think it would have been interesting if he had called him Tom instead of Voldemort in this line. I don't know. I think it's interesting that, um, I think there are other examples of sort of abandoned people who have found Hogwarts to be home that Harry doesn't reference here. Like, um, Hagrid specifically, mm. um, but also people like McGonagall. Um, she kind of now we know has been abandoned in her life by by choice and and by circumstance, and has found a home at Hogwarts. And um, and so I think there are other people that are examples of this that Harry doesn't mention here. And I also was just sort of realizing here that um, Voldemort and Snape and Harry, they all also die at Hogwarts, which is kind of crazy. Oh my God. Wow. (laughs) Wow. I think one person I would add to that list, Beth, is actually Dumbledore. I thought about Dumbledore as well. And I, I don't know. um, I think, I think later on he too, um, yeah, I think he, I think he considers Hogwarts a home in that way mm-hmm. later in life, but he definitely, yep, definitely runs yeah. from his, from the life he had and feels disconnected from that life and finds a safe haven in Hogwarts. I'm sure if you prodded all the characters, they could probably tell you something similar mm-hmm. um, yeah. about why they find Hogwarts to be a safe, a safe haven. Yeah. But I think all of those other people, you know, um, find somewhere else to be home as well. Whereas this small group that we've been talking about, really, they don't have anywhere else. They have another place to go, but they don't really have anywhere else that is truly home to them. And I think to speak to your point earlier, Katie, about why he doesn't refer to him as Tom here, I think Harry needs, the the last thing Harry needs to understand about that is that, because he's heard Dumbledore use Voldemort's real name, to, I think the way it's framed is that Harry thinks Dumbledore is using it to belittle Tom, mm-hmm. but I think he realizes that he's trying to, what he's actually doing is trying to recall his humanity, which is something that, Vol- which in a way is belittling to Voldemort because he hates humanity. Um, yeah. He hates mortality. But I think that's why Harry doesn't call him. Voldemort is still this grand, big, evil thing right now to Harry. He hasn't been fully taken down from his, you know, his pedestal of evil. He's, he's mm-hmm. still magical. But with Harry's final confrontation and with his discussion with Dumbledore, I think he certifies what he needs to know about Tom, and that he's not Voldemort, he's not this big scary boogeyman, he's just Tom, which is important about when he dies. But that's the, that's, that's farther down the line, that's not this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> well, one other thing I wanted to mention about this particular quote, um, the first part, he wanted to be stopped, to be dragged back, to be sent home. 
like who of us cannot relate to this when facing yes. a hard decision? Yes. <laughs> like oh, yeah. anything to take the responsibility away, anything to take the choice away, yep. um, to make things easier on us. Mm-hmm. I've felt that so many times in my life, and I'm sure you all can relate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh yes. yeah. Let's go home mm, right just now. So poignant, just screw it. Poignant. I'm tired of yeah. these guys. I can't say that. Word. I can't adult anymore. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> take it away. Just take it away. I, I just, I mean, like yesterday I was buying new tires and I was like hemming and hawing through <laughs> which ones to get. And finally I like said to my boyfriend, I'm like, just choose. Like, I just like, <laughs> just remove this decision from my responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so I mean, and I've definitely felt that much stronger in much you know more meaningful points of my life than buying tires. <laughs> but tires, my God, <laughs> I relate to that decision. <laughs> now, before we move, before we move into the resurrection stone and kind of start getting to the end here, I have, to, I do have to mention the two characters who are mentioned a lot but actually don't appear, shockingly, in this chapter, and with a reason. Ron and Hermione. And I bring them up really only because the film makes a drastic change to this. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fascinating what the film chooses to do. And I think I want to hear your guys' thoughts because I have really impassioned thoughts about the film versus the book. Ooh, I look forward to hearing your impassioned thoughts. What do you what do you guys think? Because it's a it's it's funny because you know everybody's just like, Oh my god, Harry and Hermione's dance and part one. And I'm just like, No no no. Let's talk about this. This It's incredibly mm. acted. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah, it is. Remind me, what did they I just watched the movie a few months ago, but I already forgot. So this is the moment when, the, in in of course, in the book, as we know, Harry never interacts with Ron and Hermione yeah. on his way down. But in the movie, he comes down from the pensive and he sees them on the staircase. He, in so many words, tells them without saying what he needs to do. Hermione is seems to be way more on the up and up than Ron is. And she says she'll go with him. Uh, which, and Katie put that here, but watching Emma Watson cry just makes me want to cry. <laughs> I know. I can't. I melt every time like her, in that scene. Her voice when she, she just cries really, really good. Yes, she does. She does. <laughs> and, and that line, it's, it's, it's almost kind of like, because there is, the, 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 the interesting thing about the edition is there isn't a lot of dialogue. Ron has mm-hmm. no dialogue. And well, and that's kind of always made me a little upset me that too. her that, and I guess it's probably because Ron is like so in shock that he can't really figure out something to say. But like Ron doesn't really even say goodbye to Harry; he just mm-hmm. like sort of stands there. <laughs> yeah, this kind of gives him a look. Yeah, but I get you, well, bro. Ron. Isn't that what the movie makers always do with Ron, though? Yes, it <laughs> is very true. Big well, bone just- of contention for me. No, yeah, and I I think the big failing on that is that it falls into the very stereotypical movie thing of, like, the girl is being emotional and the boys are holding it together. Uh Yeah. And because it's almost like the way that Rupert acts it is you can almost see that he wants to do something, but he doesn't know what to do. And Yeah, he looks like he's on the verge of tears. Yes, which is funny because if you watch, the thing I would have liked to have seen is if you've ever seen the behind-the-scenes footage of their last day of filming, 
Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm sorry to shout. But no, no. Yes. No, no. I feel that same passion. That that moment his, where the the three of his them His face. Yeah. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, all three he of them like, huddle together and they break they completely break down. Oh. And he like he like closes his eyes and I just like the look on his face in that moment. Yeah, gets me yeah. pretty strongly. Oh. Yeah, it's it's really powerful just to watch that moment more more, more so than the movie. <laughs> um, and it's it, it it's just I feel like that's just a very Hollywood failing to to mm. not have Ron and Harry yeah. interact. They 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 kind of just give each other eye contact of like, yeah, I got you, bro. I'll get you. <laughs> go, go, die. Cool. I think, though, from from a cinematic perspective, that the way the book is written, I mean, I love the way the book is written, and if given the choice, every time I would choose the book way. But um, I can see that that would struggle to translate on screen mm-hmm. and that the, the emotional impact of this chapter on screen would, would not have come across. Um... And so I've never been upset that they went this direction. Um, And and it's so beautifully acted, particularly by Emma, that I accept it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love when Harry says something like, speaking to Hermione, and I think you've known for a while. Because you're on the up and up, Hermione. Yeah. Which, but is so accurate. Mm-hmm. I could totally see that. Um, which, yeah, I don't think is in the book at all, but it makes perfect sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not mad at that scene at all. And Hermione's, I'll go with you and hugging and crying no. every time. I'm just like, yeah. well, and that, that line of, I think you've known for a while, um, I think is actually Harry saying, I've known for a while. Mm. Um, and, mm. And he may not have recognized it until now, but um, but he has known that it would probably come to this. Um, and well, yeah, that's interesting, Beth, because you voiced it kind of at the beginning of the discussion mm-hmm. that that's something that's never said in the narration directly, but something that seems to be implied through Harry's realization. Right. But in the in the in the movie, he does say he does say it, and I think the way he I, I can't recall perfectly verbatim, but I do think he says. To Hermione, something like, I think you've known for a while. I think I've known for a while, too. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of, that's, that's yeah, a I think you're right. pretty, if, you know, that's, that's pretty well written shorthand to get across what the book's trying to get across. Mm-hmm. Um, with dialogue, because movies have dialogue because movies have sound. So <laughs> that's how movies work. <laughs> Do you feel it takes away from the impact of the resurrection stone? by having Ron and Hermione in the scene earlier. Oddly enough, I don't. Because the the interesting thing is, I was trying to think of anything that I can compare this edition with Ron and Hermione to, and funnily enough, for those of you who know, and I no longer know the current stuff because I dropped after midway through 11, but if you watched Doctor Who and you specifically watched the end of Tenant's Run... Tenant's goodbye is essentially this additional scene. I don't want to go. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> he he goes and he's he he kind of makes eye contact with the people who have meant something to him and if he doesn't he at least sees them and that's kind of what they did here uh-huh. right i feel like movie wise it doesn't detract because ron and hermione are so important to the story and if you're talking movie visuals and movie presence these characters have to be present again in this span of time or you risk kind of losing their purpose in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and in the narration of this chapter, Harry thinks about them and is glad that he doesn't see them because he knows that it would just be too emotional for him to see them because they are so important to him. And we would not have gotten that bit. Um, in the movie, and so if we hadn't seen them, it would have just been like he'd forgotten about them, um, which I think is really the wrong um, the wrong way to go. He yeah. definitely didn't forget about them. He intentionally didn't want to see yeah. them because he knew he couldn't mm-hmm. handle it. Um, and um, and I just don't think there's a way to translate that to the movie without a narrator. No, because the, yeah. the only other way I think visually it could be done is for Harry to pass by them and see them but not interact with them. But I don't think that would work in the movies. Um, no. Because Ron and Hermione have such a strong presence that they've asserted in the films, I think that would have been a mistake not to have them interact with Harry. Um, especially because the movies put so much on... You know, we for all we gripe and groan about with the movies... Dan, Emma, and Rupert had everything on their shoulders by part one and part two, and they carry yeah. it really, really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they do with yeah, what they they're given. Excellent. So, I think that's. I think to not have that would be to to kind of just be like, well, what were we doing, you know, with these characters? Why why would we waste these wonderful characters and actors on by not having the moment that they need to have? Um, if anything, I think for, for that, I, I, I think it makes the movie more rewarding rather than less. And I don't think mm-hmm. it, I don't think it takes away from the resurrection stone scene because that scene is also really well done in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is. Oh yeah. Which leads perfectly into our discussion about the resurrection stone. <laughs> Yay. I want Sherry to take this one away because she's got some amazing insight here. Yes, please. <laughs> Well, okay, this book came out, was it 2007 it came out? Yes. All right, so that was 10 years after my dad died. Mm. And just for a little Harry Potter history, Prisoner of Azkaban came out, what, two years after my dad died. And so there's Mm. some reason why I really wanted Harry to have Sirius as a paternal figure. And um, so you understand about my dad. I was born with something called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which did a lot of things, but it damaged my optic nerve, which caused my blindness. Mm. When my dad and my biological mother split up, my mother did not want to raise me. Mm. So my father, however, wanted to raise me. And even some of his siblings said, maybe you should give her up or put her in a special home. This was, I was born in 57, so you can think that was not a time of enlightenment. And um, my dad would not do that. 
And he taught me to be confident and strong and to believe in myself and taught me that there was nothing that I could not do except drive or fly a plane. (laughs) Um, And I'm still hoping to drive before I die. Um, Anyway, so I, my dad was very flawed. He married five times before he died at age 57. You know, he, he was not a perfect man, but he was my hero. He was also a firefighter till I was 11. So he was doubly a hero. So I, had less love and admiration for Lily than I did for the father figures in the story mm. because my father figures saved, saved me, you know, gave me a life I wouldn't have had if my mother had raised me. So when the sorcerer, uh, sorcerer stone, resurrection stone scene comes up and Harry's surrounded by these four really special people in his life, I was bawling my head off, first of all, and I was thinking how much I know the dangers of the Resurrection Stone. I read the book, but I was thinking how much I would give for just one minute with that stone Mm. to say I miss you and I love you and thank you for everything you gave me. Mm. So this scene just really speaks to my heart in big ways, and I think especially because of the timing. I mean, in 2007, I still couldn't even talk about my dad. I could have never said all this back then. So it's a really meaningful scene for me, for Harry and what it means to him, but also it just really touched me very deeply. Thank you so much for sharing that. Mm, yeah. Good job, um, Sherry. You made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I read the chap I read no. this chapter twice and I did not cry, but this made me cry. Uh, good job. Uh, I made myself cry too, so there no, you go. No, no, I think that I think this is you know why Harry Potter this is th- I think that's what's s- super valuable to hear about that, Sherry, is that you know we when we all have such it's important to remember that we all have different things that we connect to in Harry Potter and why mm-hmm. um because mm-hmm. i think people are quick to jump to criticize or and this is not to say even just without with outside the fandom inside the fandom to criticize aspects of the novels um and to ask why rolling did this or did that or i wasn't interested in this part or this part doesn't connect for me but uh, you know Everybody has, everybody I think connects, uh, we all are individual, even though we all connect to this series um, and enjoy it and share it together, we all have individual reasons for why they, the pieces and parts mean something to us, um, which is why, you know, I, I love having listeners on, uh, different listeners every week or every other week because we we get to, I, th- I think that's the important thing to remember in critical discussion about Harry Potter is that it's not just, well, I wanted it to be this way and I didn't get my way, so I don't like it. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> it's, it's all about perspective. Yes, yes. And that's that's what makes these discussions about Harry Potter um, critical and thoughtful. Rather, you know, we, we've had our, we've had, goodness, we've had 20 years to gripe and moan about things <laughs> we don't like. And we can, and you know, we can still do that and that's fine. And, you know, it brings us enjoyment every once in a while to go angst, 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 because it's funny. But <laughs> but then when you get down to it, because I really love the idea that you, you're discussing here about the connection 
that Harry has with his father figures and how that touched you personally, because, you know, all of, by this point, I think a lot of the fandom had dismissed James and turned against him mm-hmm. because of Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. Rowling, even herself in the writing, tried to remedy and kind of was just like, no, 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 he he's still a person worth admiring. He just has faults like literally everybody in this series except Lily, who is perfect for reasons. Um, <laughs> the sainted Lily. <laughs> Saint Lily, yes. And, <laughs> and I... Uh, so it, so it's not, it's kind of refreshing to hear somebody talk about the impact of Harry's father being in that moment because I I think funnily enough I think a lot of us dismiss James in this scene but hey he has way more lines than Lily does in this scene <laughs> um, yeah he has more to say um, which also you know and there we go with that callback to Goblet of Fire fascinating with what happened with the the wand order swap yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> because oh, God, I, I have my first cop i don't have a later print where the swap happened um <gasps> whoa i i have the early print where the 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 old the original swap or the the original before the swap and i i prefer that version but I like the idea of the swap too because it gives the swap actually gives James more weight in the moment, um, and I don't mind that. Actually, mm-hmm. stop being so hard on James, you guys. The audiobook has the mistake too. It's never been re-recorded. I figured it wouldn't so. be either. Yeah, oh, interesting. Yeah, they don't- I don't think I have noticed that. That's interesting. About the about the swap. I don't think I noticed that the audiobook was never corrected. Oh, yeah. They probably have to pay Jim yeah. Dale way too much money to come back and fix that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just listened to the audiobook a lot, so I would have thought I would have noticed, but I never have. <laughs> yeah, same here. Although I listened to the Stephen Fry version, so I don't know if it's different or not. Probably not. Probably not, because they recorded it at the same time. But yeah. Now, with these figures in mind, though, and... Cherry uh, had asked this question too, and this was this was this this brought up a lot of questions from 185, so much so that it was the podcast question for that episode. What the hell are these guys? This is because <laughs> we've and we've referenced this already, but we've had things that are close to this with the Mirror of Erised, Riddle's Horcrux, the Ghosts, and Prior Incantatum. Are these? beings any of these things harry close harry says the closest they come to is the diary horcrux but are these even any of those things are they even real eric really pushed in 185 that they are not real and that harry is these are kind of embodiments of harry's thoughts which i disagree eric (laughs) (laughs) why Okay. Um, <laughs> She's got well, quotes. First of all, this I got a quote. <laughs> I'm backing mine up with science. Okay, um, not science, science literature, works. whatever, <laughs> with proof. Um, he closed his eyes and turned the stone over in his hand three times. He knew it had happened because he heard slight movements around him that suggested frail bodies shifting their footing on the earthy, twig-strewn ground that marked the outer edge of the forest. So they make sound, maybe not a lot, but they actually physically interact with the world around them. Um, so that 
differentiates them from most of the other examples. Um, Horcrux memory, Tom, he could, like, he could touch Harry and Jenny, etc. So that's the closest that we have as an example. But I, these are obviously not Horcrux memories um, <laughs> or evil or dark, dark magic. Um, I personally, to me, I think these are them. They have temporarily been pulled from the afterlife to interact with Harry in his moment of need. Um, and also because James and Remus, or I'm sorry, not James, um, Sirius and Remus show up as a younger form of themselves before Harry knew them. Um, those are my proofs that I use as proof. <laughs> Obviously, it's not proof. Everybody can have their own interpretation. I thought Remus um, was um, like a more current version of himself. He's younger, no. and he's, he's, he's not, younger. not as young as Sirius, but he's younger, and he's not shabby. He's basically he's basically Remus without the werewolf. Component. Oh, you're totally right. Lupin was younger, too, and much less shabby, and his hair was thicker and darker. So to me, they're more real than any of these other apparition types that we've been exposed to earlier in the series. Um and, you know, I've, I've seen some comments from people on episode 185 trying to compare it to what they think the afterlife is. And in fiction, the afterlife can be whatever the author wants it to <laughs> yeah. be. Like, mm. we got to take our own expectations out of the equation for a minute and look at the proof she's given us or the quotes that she's given us that kind of sway us one way or the other as to what these are. And to me, I think she's leaning more towards this is actually them, just as I think she's leaning more toward Dumbledore is Dumbledore in King's Cross. I know not everyone agrees with that, but that's just my interpretation. So go. What do y'all think? <laughs> um, I'm going to use this opportunity to once I haven't referenced this movie for a while. And I actually, through referencing it constantly, I have had listeners tell me they watched it and really liked it or Ooh. that they have seen it and they love it. Go watch Contact. <laughs> <laughs> love oh, that yes. movie the ending of <laughs> so and i good. don't want to spoil it for those of you who haven't seen it but the ending of contact speaks to exactly what you're talking about and is ac- actually a huge point of contention about that movie and why people don't like it um it's why i love it um yeah, it's yeah me too. yes and it's it's and the the way that death is addressed in that um, is very similar to this. Very, very similar. It's almost, it's borderline the same thing, actually. Um, but it, 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 it's, it, this, yeah, like what you're saying, Katie, it's, 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 this isn't what Rowling's doing. It's beautiful. It's not new, though. And, yeah. but it's, it, it is her, it is her interpretation of how this works in her world. And I think how, I mean, this is, this is inevitably what we've been leading up to. As I said, this is, this was an obvious end goal. And so I, 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 I'm inclined to think that yes, they are the actual figures because I feel like there's a stronger argument that Dumbledore is Harry's subconscious in the next chapter than these figures are. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because they're saying, they're not just saying things he knows. They're saying things he needs to hear that he can't give himself. And I, I, um, hesitate to use this as evidence. Um, but I think Dumbledore seeking the resurrection stone. So, um, 
so strongly points to the fact that they are real. And I don't know, I mean, I, I mean, I can't prove that he knew exactly how the resurrection stone worked and all of that, but um, I think he he knew that it would be that it would be actually them. Um, and that's what drew that's him point. to the resurrection stone. And I don't think he would have been as drawn to the resurrection stone if they were just, um, you know, in his head because he's got the pensive and he's already in his head way too much. Um, and he, you know, he had the opportunity of the mirror of Erised, um, being at Hogwarts, in the first book. And, um, so I think he's already had those experiences of, um, of the versions of them in his head. Um, and I think that he still is longing to, you know, see, see them for real. And that's why he's so, um, in pursuit of the resurrection stone. That's a very good Yeah, that makes sense. I always thought they were real. Some version of real. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's not, you know, too fully corporeal, but. Right. Yeah. What? Well, because well, yeah, what I was going to, what I was going to say to that point is that what I will give it in terms of not true. I, and I'm, I'm wondering if this is potentially where Eric's frustrations come from and from people who, who kind of don't see them as figures is that, and I think Rowling does this intentionally the stone does not work exactly as it is said to work in the tale of the three brothers. And I don't think any of the hallows are meant to work exactly like they work in the story because, and she, she clarifies that more. You have the benefit uh, farther down the line with, with the publication of tales of beetle, the bard, because she clarifies through Dumbledore that Dumbledore has, and Harry, I think hints at it too in the book, but Dumbledore has this belief that the, you know, the, these objects were not necessarily exactly what from the story and Rowling, I think said in interviews as well that, you know, these objects were probably crafted by the three brothers and not by death itself. Um, so they, yeah, they, I, they still yeah. conform to rules of magic, um, just very advanced, unknown, uh, slightly more unknown rules. So the resurrection stone, I think, and I think the movie does it pretty good because, and that's, that's an interesting aspect that the movie brings in that the book does not, that Harry tries to touch Lily and he can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That is interesting that they make that choice and interesting and but the thing is it's not terribly distanced from the book because harry doesn't try to make physical contact with any of them in the book yeah it feels mm. right um that didn't that didn't feel out of left field from the movie so no yeah it's mm -hmm. it's still and the movie communicates i think what this scene communicates in the book is that harry is not calling them back to the living world he did not raise the dead because as has been established a little, for a long time in the books you cannot truly raise the dead harry has the resurrection stone is the closest thing you can i think it's brought some kind of i think it's almost brought like their ooh another movie connection <laughs> <laughs> it's also the ending of AI artificial intelligence. <laughs> if you've seen that movie, oh, it's been a while since I've seen that. Uh, one. Spoiler tag for those of you who haven't seen it. I'm going to spoil it for you guys right now. Um, sorry, <laughs> but it's important for the discussion. But 
Uh, well, I can kind of hide a little bit. A character is brought back at the very end who has a lot of meaning to the main character, and they are brought back by, in a very sci-fi way, but it's it's not too terribly distant. The idea is that they can bring this character back for a day because they have, they have a, a physical piece of this character, a piece of their hair, and they're able to bring the character back for a day so that the, they can spend time together. And the character isn't truly alive and the character has most of their memories, but only like select ones and valuable ones. But the idea is kind of that they are able to pull their energy from the universe to bring them back. And they have enough Mm. physical um, connections to do that. And I think here the physical connection is the ring. It is the stone and whatever powers mm-hmm. the stone has it's doing the same that's kind of how i picture it is it it's 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 bringing back their energy yeah yeah but it didn't bring them back to life like they're dead right <laughs> well and if you it, like you know the the scientific concept that um matter cannot be created or destroyed like when you die the matter that was your body goes and becomes other things um, mm-hmm. and so if you, if you draw on that, um, and put a sort of magical spin on it, I can see how this could work. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's too distant from what Rowling's actually trying to work with here. We're all just stardust guys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. Neil, I yes. Love it. <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson. Thank you. um you had some no since we were kind of getting into the religious stuff and the faith stuff and i think that gets into this last point harry Harry dies (laughs) so that's kind of a big deal just a little just a tiny tiny deal (laughs) um yeah he's he's definitely a christ figure in this book um it's pretty obvious you know he dies he comes back to life um he dies for the greater good um not he doesn't just die he's dying for a purpose um and he submits himself to death he lets himself be captured so to speak um so there's a couple of things from the bible that um are very appropriate here um one quote um or a verse i should say john 15:13 is greater love hath no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends so well there you go that's Harry Potter. <laughs> and he is like the epitome of love in this series. Um, yeah. So there's that. And also I've got a quote here. This is also from a couple of years ago from uh, episode 185 from Sister Slytherin. <laughs> and they say, this chapter reminds me of Christ praying in the garden of Gethsemane before being apprehended by Judas Iscariot and carted away to his crucifixion. Harry is using the time to reflect on what he now knows and that he must die to help the rest of the wizarding world from Baltimore. Ah. Um, so, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, that. Oh, my God. <laughs> Katie, I know you've talked before about, like, your kind of past life, basically. But I have to say, <laughs> yeah. I'm very grateful that this kind of useful, uh, uh, these useful literary comparisons have come out of that. Because, <laughs> um, obviously... Being Jewish, I know nothing about New Testament. <laughs> like that's that's not really my area of expertise. 
Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do love that you're able to actually pull out these direct um, quotes and references because honestly, as you were reading through Sister Slytherin's comment, I was just like, I don't know how to pronounce half these words. I have the same thought. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, my childhood was good for something. <laughs> this is very valuable though because I think that's something that's always been a little like why why I can enjoy Harry Potter in this way, perhaps in some ways more than I can enjoy something like Narnia because mm-hmm. Harry's yeah. is open-ended enough that the the religious parallel is a take it or leave it. I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Narnia's is not. <laughs> Nar- <laughs> no. Narnia's is take it or you don't understand what's going on. Um, and, and so the, it, it's, it, it's, but it's really nice, I think, for those of us who may not be as knowledgeable about the Bible and its contents to be able to see, because we know that even, even though I think Rowling, she, she, she has basically said in interviews past that while she was raised with, uh, you know, a faith, a religious faith that she she struggles with that faith and that she kind of backs and forths about her feelings on that so but that that it at regardless of that it did definitely informed her writing mm-hmm. so it's very useful for me to be able to see where exactly those parallels are so thank you for finding these yeah and actually i was just thinking about the whole jesus praying in the garden um because i actually went and reminded myself of that story because it's been a while for me too um earlier today and he's praying not necessarily to well i'd have to read it again maybe he he actually does ask god to take this burden away from him at some point. I think perhaps he does. She does. Okay, thank you. I she thought says, he did. take um, this cup away from me. Nevertheless, your will, not mine, basically, is what he says. Precisely. Ooh. Thank you. See, we got two people here that know a little. At least I know a little. And she's pulling in my place. That's awesome. Um, but also during this, which is, you know, what Harry's doing, he's like, oh, somebody please drag me away. Please take this burden away from me. Um, but he's also strong enough to go through with it, just as, as Jesus was. Um, but also while he's praying, Jesus, Jesus keeps going back to his apostles, who he has asked to stay up praying with him. And he goes back three times, and they're asleep. And he keeps having to wake them up <laughs> and say, hey, guys, pray with me. So the whole three thing again, and with the resurrection stone, having to turn it three times, uh, just again was like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, and then we have three very important objects in this. In this, yes. this is the yeah. only time that they're together. Yep. So, dang. Wow. I just, um, <laughs> I, I had kind of an interesting experience over the summer. Um, my boyfriend has some, um, extremely religious family members, um, and, um, me trying to, uh, be friendly with his family. Um, I'm always looking for ways to sort of bridge that gap, um, and have them like me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so I was talking to one of his family members about Harry Potter and she started to talk about how at first she, um, wasn't going to let her kids read it because the whole witchcraft thing. And I was like, Oh no, this conversation is not going well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and then we got on the topic of uh, Harry as a Christ figure and, um, and that she had recognized that um, even back before Deathly Hallows. um, And 
you know, found that to be a much stronger influence than the witchcraft thing. Um, and nice. that was a, a driving factor for allowing her kids to read the books. Um, so I just thought that was kind of interesting. I think that's a, that I think is. that's a major evolution that's happened for, uh, with that view towards Harry Potter over the years mm-hmm. is that, I mean, we have podcasts out there that are uh, specifically about Harry Potter and its, and its relationship with religion. Um, mm-hmm. and I know that many religious figures have actually referenced Harry Potter to f- further connect with their congregations um, and use them in sermons, use yeah. passages from Harry Potter in sermons, which you could. That's amazing to me. That just blew well, my mind. Well, you could easily do. I mean, there's literally the, the, the Godric's hollow chapter literally has yeah. quotes from the Bible in it. So there's yeah. there. That's, that's it's, it's there. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know. I think there's just a little more nuance and, a little less beat you over the head that, that makes it somehow more digestible yeah. than Narnia. Mm-hmm. Um, for that, and there's more something more satisfying, perhaps, about the character arcs than Narnia's character arcs that makes that work. I don't, I don't know. Well, and I, I find that um, it's really easy to sort of um, to fit it in with your personal beliefs that it's it's broad enough yes. that that you can translate yeah. that to um what you believe and you can also help it like it can inform um what you believe but um it isn't so prescriptive that um that it only works for you know a specific religion or a specific belief I have really, really good friends who are very devout Christians, and they've all read Harry Potter and loved it. And, you know, while the books were being written, and in fact, one of their sons who hated reading is one of those kids you hear about all the time that came to love reading because of the books. And I asked her one time, I asked my friend if she had any concerns about the magic and the witchcraft. And she said, no, if if she'd had concerns about that, she wouldn't let her kids read Narnia or watch The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Good point. Well, and you, you've got an excellent list here, Katie, of other characters who performed this self-sacrifice. And I think it's important to, like, the worthwhile thing, especially about this, like, pointing this out, is that, um, if you haven't noticed, listeners, the Christ allegory is in everything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. These are just a few examples. It makes a pretty good yarn. People, somebody figured out that that's a popular story. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then they put it in everything. <laughs> so, yeah, this is going to be very pigeonholed into the things I've been exposed to, which is a lot of sci-fi. I was going to say, not only is this a lot of sci-fi, I'm seeing a lot of 80s here, too. I wonder why that is. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine why. Well, Sherry helped me with one of these uh, while we were conversing over email about how much we both love Star Trek. Yes. So I kind of put these in order of of when they came out. Um, so the most recent that I that I know of uh, was Triss in the Divergent series. Uh, if any of you have read those books, that's, oh, yeah. <laughs> have you read them and you hated I them? I read the first half of the first one and I just couldn't do it anymore. 
I have I have thoughts about wow. that, but this isn't a divergent podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time for these I things. Just, yeah. I, I just want to say real quick in that one, I was shocked and impressed that the author had the cojones to kill off the main character in the end. Um, well, that was a pretty big one. Because, you know, Harry dies, but he comes back. This does not come back. Um, and I'm like, wow, that was a bold decision. And I think she lost a lot of fans over that. Mm-hmm. You know, some people just could not wrap their head around how you could possibly kill off the main character. That's just not done. But I thought it was actually really bold and awesome. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she definitely sacrificed herself for the civilization to continue. Um then some sci-fi examples here. We've got George Samuel Kirk, so James T's father, in the 2009 Star Trek film. Hey, hey, hey um, Chris Hemsworth, he, another uh, smash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Sherry, this is the one you reminded me of. So remind me how he sacrifices himself. I know it's at the beginning. Yeah, there, um, because it's this alternate timeline, this... Romulan leader has come back through a wormhole or something and he's going to attack the enterprise, not the enterprise. It's the Kelvin as George Kirk was, he was this uh, first officer. He wasn't even the captain and the captain went over to the Romulan ship and was um, attacked. And in the end, the only way to save his crew and his wife and newborn son, James T. Kirk, was for him to send all the shuttles away and for him to actually start the self-destruct sequence for the Kelvin and run his ship into the Romulan ship. Yeah, that's an incredible opening sequence. Um, yeah. Right? <laughs> One of the things that saves the newer Star Trek movies. I agree. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's a, the first star. The first new Star Trek movie was actually not that bad. I like. Yeah, that. it was. Yeah, good. it was good. Yeah. Uh, then we've also got Jean Grey in X Two X Men United. Or, she holds back the water for everyone to escape. Or Jean Grey, and is killed in the process. She comes back to in a weird way. I know way. she. I don't yeah, like that the, yeah. Nobody, Nobody dies that permanently sequel. in comic books. <laughs> Permanent deaths, well, that one didn't permanent deaths just aren't a thing in comic books, except for Uncle Ben. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you can't bring Pretty back Uncle Ben, but everybody else can come back. Well, that that brings up a good point, and some of these characters bring up this point. But, that I mean, that that's a point that's brought up about this chapter, and Eric mentioned on the original episode that this is maybe why he had other challenges with this chapter is, you know... D- did you did you really and we had this we have this question down here too but did did you guys think Harry was really dead like did you think he was dead dead no no cuz i did not no i did not either i don't think i did either i honestly don't remember but i don't think and i, I think did. reading it now we know we are enlightened enough to know that that's not really what's important anyway but yeah, yeah. i guess when you're first reading it and the question has been, you know, neither can live all the other survives. It is, is Harry, the question, the question is, is Harry, is Harry dead? And I think by this point, like for most readers, the tension of that question was already gone. Um, like mm-hmm. it's more the feeling that Harry knows he's 
going towards death. And regardless of whether he is going to be dead or not, he is scared of the fact that death might hurt. Um, yeah. He asks, he, he brings that up twice in the chapter about the pain of death. And I, th- I think that's more, the more valuable piece than it is so much will Harry be dead or not. <laughs> um, yeah, because like, like we're already saying, he's already a Christ figure, so we already have that expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all these examples in media that we've seen, most characters come back. There's a few that don't, but most of the time. Most of the time. Um, most of the time. Like, yeah, I love my Star Trek. So we've got Spock in Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Yeah, he's fine. Who, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> that oh, kills me, but I love that movie so much. Me too. Um, and we got one of the greatest quotes of all time. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Sounds familiar. Um, but right. there's right. the contrast to that in the next movie when Kirk says that the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So much. I need to go watch this Kirk's again. crazy. Um, <laughs> and then in the new Star Trek, well, the second new one, Into Darkness, they flip it and Kirk does what Spock did in the original Star Trek 2, which I just loved that so much. Um, but both of them come back. See, and that, that um, one bothered me a lot. And that bothered me because that had the classic J.J. Abrams weird, like, weird, like, come back from death potion thing. He has that in a lot <laughs> yeah. of his stuff. He, it's usually the thing that undercuts any J.J. Abrams movies. He's just like, ah, it's fine. They'll come back. And <laughs> like, <laughs> and you have that immediately in Into Darkness, which, like, Into Darkness had so much potential to be a really clever flip-flop. And what would have been super, like you were saying, super ballsy about Divergent is if they had actually killed Kirk. That would have been like, whoa. I can't even imagine the (laughs) outrage. It's fine. People people would live. They'll get over it. (laughs) Fans don't know what's good for them. And I say that with so much love and affection. <laughs> Actually, while we were talking, I thought of another one. I don't know. Have any of you heard of or read the Gateway Chronicle series by K.B. Hoyle? No. no. Well, you should. <laughs> uh, they're, they're magical and wonderful. They're probably like a little older age group than Harry Potter originally. But they're about six friends who meet at a a family camp every summer in Michigan, and they go through a gateway into another land where they have to save the world from this evil shadow, and they all have a prophesied role to play. And the main character is a girl named Darcy Pennington, and her part of her prophesied role is that she is... Twice wed, twice dead, twice stained red. Whoa. And she does have to sacrifice herself to for this land. And it's interesting because it's a girl, because it's almost always boys mm-hmm. or men doing this. So it, I liked it because it was a girl. Mm-hmm. And she starts off as being not a real pleasant girl. She's 13 in the first book, and she's... You know, just she's 13 and she's shy and she's awkward and she's uncomfortable with these new kids that she's never met before and feels like she doesn't fit in. And then she ends up 
being their leader, you know, and making this huge sacrifice. That sounds awesome. They're they're great books. The Gateway Chronicles. Check those out. You know, all of this media that we're going through, and especially these ones, Katie, that you're citing too, and there's some that are coming flooding to my mind as we discuss I I feel like these like this idea of this grandiose sacrifice and this self realization to be able to make these sacrifices is just you know, that that this universal nature of of this of the Christ sacrificial story is 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 really appealing because and and it's something that seems to be really appealing in in a in these in these fandom communities that we have like Harry Potter like Star Trek like Star Wars like Doctor Who these things happen in all of these series um Lord of the Rings Lord of the too. Rings I was just looking to my to my right and my like pile of Studio Ghibli, Hayao Miyazaki films, and I was like, "Ooh, lots of characters kind of throw themselves on the fire <laughs> in those movies." Um, I was even thinking—I mean, it happens—it it, doesn't—it it happens in Disney movies. Uh, you know, characters, especially parents, die a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh, you're making me think of Bambi. I mean, well, and, and, you know, we, we were talking about how we cry every time we watch Emma Watson cry. Beauty and the Beast is that same, it's the same thing. The Beast dies yeah. and he comes back to life. And you, you know, you know mm-hmm. that's inevitably going to happen, but there's something so emotional about the scene. Not so, personally for me, not so much on the remake. The remake is great, but the, the death scene and, and the, but the, <laughs> Holy moly, the original animated version, like, the, notwithstanding that the animation is gorgeous, but there is just something so well acted in those, in that scene and so well written and so well done with, like, you know he's gonna come back to life because it's a Disney movie, but it's, there's still something that works really well about that sacrifice in that scene. Um, yeah, it, 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 it goes from, and you even had a Disney movie in here, you have Tron in here. Um, Kevin Flynn, yeah, he absorbs clues that his son and the ISO can get away. I always hoped they would make a sequel to that, but I guess they're not going to at this point. Tron is a super Christ allegory. Tron has lots of Christ allegory imagery. Like, that's that's an intentional thing in Tron, from what I... I never really thought yeah, about it. Yeah, from what I've heard. Tron Legacy, by the way, is like my greatest guilty pleasure of all time. <laughs> like, it is so it's good. It's so good. It's so bad in so many ways. But it's one of those movies where it's the one of the very few movies where I will sit down and be like, mm, I don't care. It's pretty. <laughs> it's pretty and I'm engaged for some reason. <laughs> Dang it, Tron. <laughs> and I got to give a shout out. To my favorite Star Trek character, Data, who sacrifices his poor self in Star Trek Nemesis. Data. (laughs) I love Data. I four will never live up to (laughs) I don't I don't wanna um put any major spoilers out there because I know Discovery is so new. Oh my god. Um but Discovery kinds of turn kind of turns this idea on its head. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, so. Discovery's turning a lot of things Stay on tuned. its head. Yes, it is. In the best way. <laughs> I love Discovery. Star Trek podcast after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think 
the this all leads up to a really big question that I think is a great question to end on, um, which looks like it came from something that MuggleNet produced, actually. It is. Should Harry have died? Yes. <laughs> no. No. <Whoa>. I'm <laughs> I was really hoping you had a strong feeling about this, and we're going to expel that. No, I don't. No, I actually think this quote from the the book you cited is pretty much my feeling on it. It's correct. Well, go ahead and give it a read. Oh me. Oh well. This yes. this you the Katie found this quote from uh it was from MuggleNet.com's book Harry Potter Should Have Died, which I now just remembered I gave out uh, as a prize at one of my Harry Potter parties. My friend Michelle got this book, I think. Um nice. I'd forgotten I, I had did, it. I don't I have it. Was... I don't have any of I don't have a lot of the extracurricular Harry Potter books that came out from the fandom actually. Um but the quote says uh, it kind of it kind of answers the question. It's in summary. It says Harry is able to dodge death and become the man who lived. Is this an ending that cheats readers who expect Harry to be the sacrificial man who died? The blood protection and elder wand both save Harry, and fans love that Harry becomes the man who kind of lived twice. <laughs> the, the complexity of that is better than if Voldemort had merely killed him dead. Verdict: No. The series would not be stronger if Harry had been killed. Agreed. Yeah, that book is good because they have, it's two authors, and they kind of do devil's, devil's advocate. Like, one will take one stance on an issue, and the other takes the opposite stance. They argue their stance, and then they come to a verdict. Um, which this one, I I loved reading both opinions, and I could see it go either way, but I do agree with their verdict on this one. What about you, Sherry? <sighs> Me too. I, I do. We, we had long debates about that topic on Harry Potter for grown-ups. Right up there with the is snake good or evil debates. And um, mm. there was one person who said he wanted the last chapter of the last book to be called The Man Who Died. Mm. And I, yeah, I never wanted that. I wanted Harry to live. Remember, I felt maternal toward him. I wanted him to live and have the happy ending that he, he'd never had in his life. So I was very pleased with the ending. What about you, Beth? Um, yeah, I agree with this too, that, um, that he shouldn't have died. And I think partly that's, um, due to the King's Cross chapter where he gets to decide. Um, and I think that the entire series is stronger because of his decision to number one die and then his decision to come back. Um, those were not passive things that happened to him. Those were decisions that he made. And I think that that is crucial, um, and would have been really missed if he had chosen to die. That's a good point because he, if I remember right, he struggled, not struggles with the decision, but he acknowledges that going back is going to bring him a whole lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He realizes it's not the easy decision. Again, it's choose between what is right and what is easy, and he chooses the right decision, which is to go back and finish this fight. Um, I just, so, yeah, I agree with you. I want to make some Buffy parallels here because I'm a huge Buffy fan. And hey, more parallels. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and 
and Buffy dies and comes back to life, which she did not choose. Um, and so it's interesting to sort of compare getting to make that choice and not getting to make that choice and um, mm. how it how it feels different to come back getting to make the choice. If Harry had chosen to go on to the afterlife, it would have felt to me like he was giving up. And yeah, he had the right to give up, I guess, after everything, but he should go back home and get his reward for all he went through. Besides, I personally can't conceive ever of giving up. So I just couldn't fathom that idea that he would give up. Yeah, it sounds like you're a Gryffindor to me. <laughs> <laughs> I really hate, I, again, I hate to use this platform to, Allison, I swear, I'm not doing this just to bash Cursed Child, and I know you, you're going to think I am. But that, therein lies my problem with Cursed Child as a whole, because one of my favorite kind of I quotes from Rowling outside of the Harry Potter series about her explanation for this is that she, and one of the things that I think is the obvious end goal by the epilogue as much as whatever problems we have with the epilogue is that Harry, Harry's reward is that he gets a family and that he gets a, he gets a large family and it's the complete opposite mm-hmm. of what he grew up with and something he always wanted. Um, it's what he saw in the mirror of error said. Um, it was yeah. his greatest desire to have a family and he gets that. And, and it's, you know, as for, for what the epilogue shows, that is, a, it is a happy family cursed child. And I think that's <laughs> like, yeah. that's, and, and, and cause there's another great, uh, if you, I have mentioned her many times on the show, Listeners, if you haven't checked out, I, she used to be called the Nostalgia Chick. Her real name is Lindsay Ellis. She, her, her current YouTube channel is called Shay Lindsay, which is a great name. And, uh, she, um, did a video series that actually tracked the endings of, or the, the, the whole series of The Lord of the Rings. And she got to the ending and actually talked to, uh, did a lot of comparing to Harry Potter, which she doesn't like as much. She's not a big fan of Harry Potter. She appreciates it, but she's a bigger fan of Lord of the Rings. And what she talks about there is that she's not really a fan of how Harry ends because she feels it ends too neatly. And that Lord of the Rings ends more realistically with the idea that the hobbits just go home and they can't really go home. And so much so that, uh, Frodo can't even stay. And yeah. the thing is, people have she she kind of uses that as a critique against Hallows. But the way I see it, especially from Rowling's thoughts on the epilogue and where this story is going, is that that's not what Rowling's trying to say with her story. Um, Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter are setting out for two different uh, morals and endings, and they have a lot of same similar ideas um and Rowling was obviously inspired by Lord of the Rings but I think the end goal for Harry is not Frodo's end goal (laughs) also Frodo had a happy life until he went off on the quest with the ring yes Harry didn't have a happy life yes there's there's they're kind of inverses of each other in that way yeah um but yeah no I because because that is the goal Harry dying doesn't make sense <laughs> and just being dead and that's the end. Yeah. And that 
That would be so depressing after all he went Ugh. through. We talk about all the other tragic characters in this series. That would have been the most <laughs> well, the, the funny thing, yeah. though, is really when you think about it, she didn't disappoint anybody because he died and he lived. <laughs> yeah, yes. he did both. Yeah, everybody got kind of what they wanted in that respect. And it's great because I I love the way that if you've ever heard the story from Radcliffe, he asked Rowling before it was all finished. He before Hallows was published, he said, "Do he asked her, do I die?" And she said, "You get a death scene." <laughs> and oh, and she she said, "You can watch it." He, they talk about that story on the Deathly Hallows Part Two Blu-ray interview that with the two of them. Um, but it is funny because she says. I kind of watched your face, and I think I knew you're a smart boy. I knew you figured it out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, it's like she she gave everybody what they wanted. So why are y'all complaining about it? <laughs> so we have a podcast question of the week that we want to pose to you, wonderful listeners, and that is: If Dumbledore had told Harry he was going to die earlier than he did, how would that have affected Harry? Uh, and if you want to hear more about this topic and our opinions, uh, you can hear our entire discussion on this over on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash alohomora. But you can also definitely go to our main website and share your own thoughts there in the comments. Props to Beth, because this was her question. And it's go, Beth! <laughs> it, it initiated a lot of excellent discussion on this show. Definitely. Yeah, I look forward to uh, to hearing what our listeners have to add because you guys always have such awesome points that I never would have ever considered. <laughs> so reading comments is one of my favorite things. Definitely. <laughs> well, I want to give a huge shout out to our guest, Sherry. Um, you have been an awesome guest. You've been so engaged in our discussion and, and brought up some really great points. So we really want to thank you for being on. Um, and it's also your birthday coming up. So we want to wish you a happy it birthday. <laughs> I think, um, you have already had your birthday, um, when this gets posted, but we're recording this a little bit early. So your birthday is in a few days. So happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. It was so fun talking with all of you your birthday is the day after my brother charlie's birthday hey oh, good people born in october my husband's birthday and five days before mine <laughs> well see there you go and it is two days before my legal birthday but not my real one <laughs> so many birthdays happening in the next week this is awesome <laughs> it's a good birthday october week. is a good month <laughs> Absolutely. But we got to, and, and Katie, you, you were the one who uh, uh, kind of found Sherry through the audition process because we got to give a big shout out to Sherry, especially because she's been a longtime listener and contributor. And um, was actually the reason that we chose this chapter because listeners, we do know that you voted for a Deathly Hallows chapter. You want, you wanted the Prince's Tale. We will get to it, but not right now. We just did a Snape yes. episode. You can <laughs> go listen to that right one. <laughs> we, we need a break from Snape and discussion about Snape for just a little bit. We're going to get to it, 
but it's going to be a little farther down the line. But we did want to do Hallows, and Sherry had suggested this chapter to us. Um, so we big props to Sherry for putting this forth and being a part of this discussion. Absolutely. And for all of the amazing emails she has sent us over the last year with all of her thoughts on several episodes, um, we love hearing from all of our uh, all of our listeners, um, whether it's on the main website, through email, all the all the different ways you can contact us, Twitter, etc. Um, we love all of that. So huge thank you to Sherry for uh, for sending those our way. And another topic that a lot of you have suggested, because uh, yes, the 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 my fellow Alohomora hosts can attest to. I went through all of our emails. We had so many emails. (laughs) I went through all of them and I sorted them into a gorgeous uh, Excel spreadsheet on Google with all of the topics that you have all suggested and who suggested them. And we had a lot of uh, suggestions for this, our next topic, which will be the shipping wars. Oh, we're gonna get into it. Let's we'll put up our fisticuffs and we'll get out our our love notes and go to Madame Puttafoot's. We be great. we got into we got into talking about shipping just a little bit in the LGBT episode, and so that got me yes. really excited to to discuss it more. So I'm looking forward to this one. Yes, awesome. So prep yourselves, <laughs> listeners and. Katie can tell you a few ways about how to prep yourself for that episode if you want to be on it. Absolutely. What you need to do, even if you don't want to be on that episode, but if you do, do it for that as well. Um, But for that topic and any (laughs) other or any chapter, uh, what you need to do is go to our main site, alohomora.mugglenet.com, and click on Be On The Show. And there's a great description there that tells you all you need to know about how that process works. And there's a little form for you to fill out that you can choose which topic you're interested in, or you can fill one in in your description. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your opinions on that topic. And you might be chosen to be on the show, just like Sherry. Um, all you need is a set of like Apple headphones, something that has a microphone attached to headphones, or it can be separate headphones and microphone, but nothing fancy is, is required. You don't have to get Michael's $150 <laughs> blue, whatever. <laughs> I mean, if you were, if you're going to invest in podcasting for a while, I would highly yes, recommend that's it. Our second um, ad. By the way, thank you to, I think it was Spencer Miller on Twitter who gave me a boost on a recommend on the recommendation for that microphone, because uh, that's the reason nice. I got it. Um, because I had already seen it and heard about it, but then that recommendation from a listener put it over thank the top. You. That's so thank you. But yes, you don't have to have this yes. mic to be on the show. <laughs> Nothing fancy, but we just need you to have a microphone and headphones. That's all that is required. We're, we're not going to tell you here, listeners, but if you do go to that page that Katie said, you can click on the drop down menu and you can see ahead to what other topics we've already oh. planned. <gasps> Giving away our secrets. No, that's, a, that's a great way to know whether or not you are interested in being in it. And then there's also a separate um, link for topic submit or submit topic, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are interested in a topic yes, the, that's the, not yeah, in our drop down for Beyond the Show, you can go to the other one and submit there. Um, lots of options. Also for uh, for Michael's preservation of his sanity um i would like to remind everybody that if you are applying to be on the show you also need to send in um a sample audio 
so that we um so we know that your yes, your audio is um all set and of of quality that can um be on the show and and if not then then we know we can get in t- contact with you and try and um figure out a way to improve your your audio situation but um please 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 send in an audio file so that <laughs> Michael doesn't have to go crazy saying oh but you would have been such a good <laughs> guest but we don't know what your audio sounds like <laughs> <laughs> yes, that it's it's very it's going to give you a big boost if you if you send in the audio as well and um that uh the 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 if you read the directions carefully listeners that's that's the important part. We've revised the directions a little bit in the hopes of making uh, uh submitting a recording as well as submitting topics a little easier for you. Um so just make sure and read those directions carefully and that'll give you everything you need to know to submit not only an interest in being on the show, but also a recording. And actually, Beth can tell you a little more about how to get in touch with us. And uh, one of those ways does include our email. Yes. So um, you can get in contact with us on Twitter at AlohomoreMN. Um, also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Open the Double Door. On YouTube at YouTube.com slash AlohomoreMN. Um, our main site is alohomora.mugglenet.com and you can email us, um, whether it's your audio file or anything else you'd like to send us, um, you can email us at alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. And one more reminder to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash alohomora. You can sponsor us for as low as $1 a month. And we want to thank again Fernanda Torres for sponsoring this episode. Thank you so much. Woo! Yay. Love all our patrons. Y'all are fantastic. So thanks for listening. I'm Katie. I'm Michael. And I'm Beth. Thank you for listening to episode 231 of Aloha Mora. I open at the Dumbledore. Towards the Forbidden Forest, Harry passes a fallen Colin Creevy before passing on his valuable knowledge uh-huh. Wait, to Nagini. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I wrote it. Just a would be interesting. to Neville about Nagini. There we go. That makes a whole lot more sense. So sorry. <laughs> Harry just wanted to tell Nagini what's up before he goes to that. Okay, let me start that over again.